Blog Talk Radio. Mozart, think Mozart, huh? 
The love received so far has been so hard. There's a few dudes to run, but they medulla they sharp. Man, they so soft. Don't be thrown off any Zolar. Avoid them at all costs, like raccoons or skunks. But back to the regular scheduled program. The program is sponsored by Seven Heaven. What else in hell can you get an open line to heaven at 11-11? Emerge at the other end of those meditation portals and elevated walk tools. Even some abort tools. Any questions, comments, or concerns, press one. To everyone else, thanks for attending another session. I'm pleased to teach, but it's an honor to learn. Certainly, courtesy of KTL University. Oh, please don't be frightened. I'm terribly sorry about this. You are. Peace, peace to the family, peace to you and yours. This is Nova Ledge Radio, and you are now rocking with the best. Yes, indeed, this is your host, okay? Co-host, Brother Red Pill, all right? But you are here, family. Shout out to you. You showed up on this Friday evening, the first Friday of the Christian calendar month of January, New Year of 2015, okay, after the death of the immortalized Christ, shout out to him, okay, Uh, give me one second, I got to ask somebody on the chat. All right, family, please uh, take this time out, post a link to your Facebook page or what have you, um, Instagram, wherever you send your tweets out, let the family know. Or oh, this is the first weekend of the quote-unquote New Year, so I, I figure that people is out there cutting it up, you know what I'm saying, letting it all hang out. Nonetheless, let them know that you are here rocking with the best. All right, we have a very special program put together for you tonight. Um, yeah, I just want to clarify and, and, and state my position on the quote-unquote New Year. I just want to say it one time because um, we've definitely been known in the past to, you know, put up a fuss and boycott this particular time of year and the festivities that people are participating in, but you know, you, you, you grow with life, you know what I'm saying? You grow with life, and through the years, you find ways to uh, see that, you know, there's science in everything. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing that people are doing that's unscientific or it wouldn't be done, whether it's 100% agreeable with natural law or what have you, that remains, or traditions that I say. You know what I'm saying? That always remains to be questioned. But I wrote something on New Year's. Um, I put up a picture called Planting Seeds for Spring. And this is the concept that I've been trying to get through to people during this particular time of quote-unquote years when you put your seeds in the dirt. It's when you get your fingernails dirty. It's when you withdraw and you go in. 
You know what I'm saying? It's when, as my brother Lester Lovin says, the soul, the S-O-L, the sun is at its closest to the planet right now. Okay? Not during summer, but now. So the sun is feeding your soul. You know what I'm saying? The solstice, hence the solstice. This is when you go inward. This is when you reflect. This is when you detox and release yourself of heavy metals. This is when you really plan to triumphantly come into the the spring, your new birth, you know what I'm saying? The return of the sun. All right? But this is the planning phase. This is, you know, the time that you take for yourself, the time you take for your plans, the time you take for your business. This is the time that you take with family. This is the time that you take, you know, if you are in the northern regions to, you know, be away from quote unquote, you know, cold of, of these winter months, these dead months. You feel me? So if you approach it like that, with that particular attitude, um, I think that, of course, you know, you'll come out on top. So I'm just going to read what I wrote. Hopefully it can help the family move forward in the discussion. You know what I'm saying? Because we spend too much time bickering and arguing. And at the end of the day, you know, recognize and I realize is that people, for the most part, you know, want to be on the same accord as people around them. You know what I'm saying? If this was all about being so different, you know, people would have been cut themselves off from society and segregated themselves and built their own. The fact that I see nothing being built, I see the thing that people don't really want to they want they don't want to be alone, you know what I'm saying, even if they are black sheep, even a black sheep wants some sort of level of camaraderie amongst one another, you know what I'm saying, so if we can arrive at these understandings and then we can move forward, then it will do us a lot better. You feel me, so here's my scientific explanation of it, okay. Instead of mental jousting with one another about what date is the appropriate one to celebrate the quote-unquote New Year, why not look at this time of year as the planting season? At the time of inception, when the seed is implanted into the fertile soil, does life not begin? Is not the gestation period spent in darkness? So instead of nine months for the human, we are undergoing a three-month process of which your thoughts, your plans, your intentions will fully flourish and break ground at the time of spring. There is nothing new under the sun because life begins in the darkness under the black light of the moon. This is where the framing, nourishing, and preparation for the arrival of full-fledged life takes place. So let us get our hands dirty and put those seeds in the dirt during this time. Go within and dig deep for the best plan possible and hold your intentions in your mind. The dark work shed and craft, and craft your masterpiece accordingly so when day breaks, you can shine like the glorious sun. It's all the science of the planting, my homebrace. Happy New Year. Okay? Drop them off for that. So, you know, if we approach it like scientists, you know what I'm saying, from that perspective, we won't hurt anybody's feelings. We won't have to feel like we're so out of connection with natural cycles, you feel me? We can just keep it moving forward. And I think that that's most important because there's a lot of work to be done in this next upcoming year. Again, like I said, whether that new year starts for you 
as of January 1st or March 21st or September 11th or January 25th with the Mayan day, you know, the reset of that particular calendar, you know, however you spin it, you feel me? There's still something to be learned and applied from what we are participating and seeing. And also, this is a um, celebration of Sirius, the rising of Sirius, you know what I'm saying? It's funny how people knock, quote-unquote, America so much, you know what I'm saying? But America, at the fabric of its celebrations, are always celebrating your ancestors, your cosmic ancestors from July 4th to January 1st, you know what I'm saying? It's all about Sirius, you know what I'm saying? So there's always something interwoven for you, for the benefit of you. This year, we're strictly going to focus on how we can take this information and things that we see, you know, and and we're going to turn it into the benefit and the favor of ourselves. We're not going to play the victim this year, you know. We have no adversaries, you know what I'm saying? We just only have uh, different aspects of energy that might be, um, you know, conflicting. You know what I'm saying? There might be square in our particular energy at the particular time, but, you know, there's always daybreak. You know what I'm saying? There's always going to be an opportunity and a chance for you to shine. So we want to focus on that time. Shout out to the panel that joined us on Friday. Um, no, on Tuesday. I'm bugging. You know what I'm saying? Because it feels like a, tonight feels like a Tuesday show. It don't feel like a Friday show. <laughs> so for the panel that joined us on Tuesday, that would be Lloyd Strayhorn, brother um, Tyreek from Destiny Grind, you know, and our brother, our big brother, Ra Aku, all right, the Cosmocrat, came through and did the thing for the 2015 Cosmo Destiny is in the archive. If you have not heard it, definitely want to get that replay. All right. Definitely want to get that on your consciousness, stamp that on your consciousness so you could navigate through the quote unquote new year, the upcoming year, the upcoming cycle. It's just a cycle. All right. You can know what you need to know so you can synchronize yourself to the energy so you can become a silver surfer and not end up underneath the wave. All right. Um, quick announcements. Do we have any quick announcements to make? Shout out to Brother Rich. Okay. Shout out to Brother Rich and his channel over there, Underground Railroad. All right. We got a new clip up that's kind of like going viral right now. All right. Blue Pill discusses Macklemore and white privilege in hip hop. This is a very exciting conversation that we had. Um, and I'm moving the feedback from it, you know. So I just dropped a a link in the chat room if the family wants to check it out. I'm currently working on the Nota Ledge site. It's going to be a main location with all of the videos, all of the archive, KTL episodes, all of the blog posts, all of the updates. It's going to have a store there. So everything will be like one stop, you know what I'm saying, to donate or everything will be in that one location so we wouldn't have all of these uh, different domains and things, you know, strewn about. 
so that's coming in the very, very next few days. I was going to try or I was attempting to launch it today, but that didn't happen. All right. So I'm going to have it available for the family soon enough. Hopefully by time for our anniversary show. I believe that's sometime next week. You know, we, we celebrate our anniversary next week. Shout out to everybody who has journeyed with us on this monumental journey. Okay. We're going to be uh, arriving at our fifth year. Our fifth cycle begins January 9th. Okay. So we'll be in the building celebrating that. Of course, we're going to have a powerful show put together, you know what I'm saying, just in time. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's it's a good feeling. It's, it's a very good feeling. And there's still so much more to go. You know what I'm saying? There's still so much more to go. There's so many chapters to, to uh, let me call my co-host and see where he's at, man. Cause this dude will be bugging. Two things you got to do out the week, you know? I don't know why it's not down yet. Talk Studios is kind of bugging tonight, too. And, of course, always shout out to the chat, you know, Tuesday night's chat was on fleek, you know what I'm saying? That would be a chat night I won't forget anytime soon. Definitely shout out to them. All right. Something ain't working with this. Let me try on my phone. Give me one second, y'all. Uh-huh. My bad. Calling in right now. You already in. Huh? You already in. I called you on the three-way. All right. Peace. Peace to the family. Yeah, we on the show now. All right, man. Yes, sir. Uh huh. Got got caught. Up. Yeah, I got caught up with the little ones. Pardon me. Peace to the family, though. Welcome to Know the Ledge. Salute everybody that has joined us tonight on this uh, beginning of this new fiscal cycle of 2015. Okay. Happy New Year's. Indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. What's good, though? None. I just, you know, I spoke to the family. I just did a, a very quick reading of the post that I wrote pertaining to the quote-unquote new year, you know what I'm saying, so we could get that out the way, you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, we, we've, yeah, we've protested on this program before, and, and I grew up in a household where my grandfather, of all people, my GP, you know, emphasize and stress that to us repeatedly that, you know, the new year is March 21st and spring only new things born in the 
and I hold that line to the day, you know what I'm saying? That yeah, I join yeah. them. But at the same time, yeah, I'm 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 still able to understand, you know, even periods of gestation, you know what I'm saying? When we're conceived and we're in the belly for nine months, so we still not alive. And that's an issue that, you know, people argue over. That's an issue that religion has, has been wrangling with forever or what have you. So in actuality, even I'm 39, I'm really 40 because I know those nine months of, of, of life in triple darkness, I was still alive. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's the same way with me understanding the science of life, you know, and Brother Rock, who spoke on it, you know, uh, uh, on, on on Tuesday, you feel me? Like the, the, the darkness, the moon, you know what I'm saying? That energy is actually what's feeding these lives, these life forms, whether it be you in the belly or the plants, you know what I'm saying? Indeed. And I so, would also say this. What? That, that I, I was saying that I would also say that, you know, we are in the beginning of the winter, which is, you know, scientifically, this is the time of death, the death cycle, the time when things die. But the same time when things die, the same time that things are being born. Right, regeneration. It's the regeneration, you know, the scorpion principle that, you know, energy never dies, spirit never dies. So in this hibernation, right, in this, this period of deep hibernation and transformation, reevaluation, um, looking within, fixing oneself, strengthening oneself, preparing oneself for the time of station and growth, which is in the spring, which uh, signifies... No, no, no. Those, you know, yeah, this is gestation. You're talking about... The gestation period. Right, when, 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 when one is born, you know, when you break ground, when you break skin, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. When you're taking that first breath, when you're taking that first sight of sun and you've arrived into this plane, this visual plane, you know, where, you know what I'm saying? That, uh, that your know, wake up moment when you broke the placenta, you know what I'm saying? It took that first breath. <laughs> and some people say that first breath is the death. Look at that. So, you know, it's, it's a bunch of different ways to flip it. You know, I want to be in solidarity with the cycles. You know what I'm saying? I'm not dismissive of that which I was taught at the same time. I am preparing myself for the spring. But January 1st is an indicator of a new cycle. You know, and to me, it's like the stopwatch went off. You know what I mean? Now I get to get all my regimens, my workout regimen starts, my detox regimen starts. I reset yeah, the button like on the business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and people have a tendency to change when the ball drops. And, you know, and, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, I can't ignore that. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to take advantage of that. I get all type of phone calls. People, you know, their attitude then changed. You know what I'm saying? They, they, yeah, I mean, they, 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 they're nice. I'm, I'm getting, you know, I apologize for this. I apologize for that. You know, all that is good because that's, that's what's good with the new year. The, when the fiscal, it's the beginning of the new fiscal, and I've we said it on um, a few occasions before that, you know relationships, that's your that's commerce, you know, that that's 
friendships and relationships and business and things like of that nature. That's the true currency. That's the current. That's the energy. You know what I mean? Like that's real money. That's real. That's not money. That's commerce. So, in the beginning of the new fiscal, it's like the slate is clean. You know, um, almost like tax season. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you rewind the clock, January first. People's debts. They put their debts. They put their debts away. You know what I mean? New money, new. New money. <laughs> the tall drops. <laughs> yeah, so. That's what it is. It's, it's, you know it's I mean? an opportunity well afforded, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, we should take advantage. Look, man, these niggas be celebrating everything else that came down the pike this calendar year. Thanksgiving to Christmas, yeah, the whole enchilada, and I'm not here to judge you. That is not my role in life, you know what I'm saying? Just identifying. So, you know, like I was speaking earlier before you was here, and I was like, even though people admittingly are black sheep, you know what I'm saying, and they might be different from everybody else, I think people are striving, though, for some sort of camaraderie. You know, they want to be one with the people. I, I really don't think people want to be so different that they're like alienated from society. You know what I mean? That's not what I'm saying because I don't see nobody building a society onto their own. You know, everybody's actually trying to get along in, in, in the mosh pit. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when we keeping it 100 like that, I'm just giving people, you know, mentally that out. You know what I'm saying? Where you're not compromising or selling yourself out. It's just preparation like anything else. It's a cycle, you know. Yeah, like don't don't yeah don't don't overbear yourself with getting into arguments with people that you love, telling them that they're practicing a pagan. Uh, <laughs> You're a pagan. Inquisition and all that. Yeah, about to get out there. The wooden cross and all of that. The um, the blood of Romulus. Yeah, like <laughs> the pair. He was going to get the pier. The pair. You know, all of the Inquisition torture tools to put their family in there. Spare yourself, yeah. Spare your family and spare yourself. Just, you know, drop a gem here and there. Pushing, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't become that dude. You know what I'm saying? Get on your two. Get on your 15. Turn up. Yeah, so I was just telling them as well, you know, we got the anniversary coming up. I'm very excited about that because uh, as I've been building this new site, I've been in the archives just really looking at the catalog and, yeah, just, you know, really proud of the work that's been done and um, even more so excited about the opportunity finally after like five years to have that one site where, Everything is situated in that 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 one place. And I think the Ning site pretty much used to be like that. Shout out to A Lindo, you yeah, know. Shout out to Lindo. My, my brother um, took that site down and put it up. Yeah, well, we love him. We do. It was a yeah. prototype of you know what the site eventually is going to evolve into, because you know with all startups, things of that nature, you know it's all about the growth. You know, uh, the way that you grow, the way that you evolve and turn into something different. You know what I mean? And I feel like this site captures that better than the other than the previous site. 
you know. It really, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's fresh, family. It's right. clean. It's fresh. It's easily navigated. You know what I'm saying? Um, and and I'm I'm you know. I'm like shouting out my 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 writers out there. We're gonna have a blog section put together so we can write these posts. You know, even like post programs, post these episodes. We need to write posts on what do we learn? What do we learn new? What stuck out most to you? You know, did you take this information, research it? What did you find? Scrutinize the information if necessary, or testify. You know what I'm saying? If the energy moved you a particular way that you had a revelation or something happened in your life the next day that could not align you up with this information. You know, you had a eureka moment. All of those things, you know, we just want to give the family an opportunity to have a voice, you know what I'm saying, and to, uh, you know, be heard. Library. Yeah, the cyber library is going to be there. Um, we got yeah. the KTL. We got KTL University courses that are going to be available. We got the KTL um, University starter pack, you know what I mean, 25 titles under different um, different genres like occult, metaphysics, uh, Moorish uh, science, and all kind of things, you know what I mean? The merch, you know what I mean? We, we got some very um, powerful, powerful logos. I think Brother Blue seen a few for KTL Radio. You know, the family been asking for some new. You know, they want they want to rock. They want to re- represent KTL. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. With, the, uh, with shirts and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Let me do this. Yeah. You know, it would be remiss of me if I ain't go to the lines and uh open up the line, let our bro in. Call it from the four four. Peace, peace, peace to the young God. Peace, peace, KT the arc degree. But Lord, thank God. You yeah. know, thank all the deities that survived that one. I mean, oh my goodness. The who spoke about that on Tuesday's show. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I gotta it go is, back and listen. I yeah, that it's one. gonna be returning to to Scorpio, and, and I June, think ultimately yeah. leaving in in September. So. June, Trust June, me, I, yeah, I ain't, I ain't even getting gas until I fully know, until I'm six months out of it being out. Fact. You feel yeah. me? I'm going to enjoy yeah. it up until June. I know that. Yeah, huh? Take advantage of that. I said, I'm going to take advantage of it up until June, that's for sure. Yeah. Yes, sir, yes, sir. So yeah. what's good, yeah, How's the family? How's the A? What's going on in the ACL? What's going on with you, with the business, oh, and um, some of the new things that are coming up for 2015, 20 nickel? Uh, the, the, I would have to say the word of the year is Tom Mary, you know, returning back home to the to the origins of civilization, you know, doing a lot of work, 
with my dad and, and getting the word out there to the people, you know, about the about the temple over on 126th, right in the heart of Harlem. You know what I mean? Yes, so that's definitely going to be, uh, you know, my main focus this year is assisting my father in, uh, in the realization of his vision, you know, having yeah, that man, university I, for the people, you know? I was looking at the lineup. You're pretty heavy in there. You know what I'm saying? You got a lot of dates, you know, teaching in that temple. I'm proud of you, bro. Oh, I appreciate it, 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 man. Yeah, it brought me it brought well, me to a, a ethereal tear. You know what I'm saying? I was <laughs> I was crying in the ethers. Yeah, I was well, like, you look know, at it's this. a long time coming, long time. Little brother, coming. Every, growing up, man. Every yeah, fourth Sunday of the month, you can find KT the Arch degree at the Todd Mary Temple doing the Hollywood Decoded, um, and also That's doing a rite of passage with the with the young men as well. So I won't just be doing the blockbuster titles. I'm also going to be doing you know, a lot of the classics, uh, old school throwbacks that, um, you know, a lot of people have, are not even aware of, and just using the, the entertainment element as a medium uh, to 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 reach and touch, you know, the youth, you know, and, and get them open to this information. So, you know, it's a start. You know, you've got to start somewhere, man. Right. Can you can once I read this introduction? Can you call the brother for me on a three way? Oh, matter of fact, I'll call him because I just cleared up the. Uh, I think I call him through the blog talk. Okay? Yeah, because I was gonna say but, I'm, I'm down. You was asking about the A. I'm in Atlantis right now. The waters are coming down strong. I got the the three young guys in the back seat. You know, okay. rolling in the in the All right. Shout out to the young guys, man. I'm gonna see y'all in a minute. Oh, yeah, they waiting on you. They waiting on you. I already know. They're going to let go me up. You know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah. Oh, you got to yeah. see what the, what the young master builders is doing down here. They spazzing with these blocks, boy. I already know. I got to, yeah. I already know. I got to, I got to, you know, I'm I'm a little bit more adept now than I was before. So, you know what I'm saying? I can sit there and, and, and build some structures yeah. with them with that young, that young Lego master building set. But look, let's get into tonight's program because this is uh, very interesting to me. I've heard about this brother for some time now, you know, and to have the opportunity to have him on the program and for him to come forward and share his his genius with you, family, is an honor, you know. So let me read the introduction, and I'm going to read his bio briefly, and it's not a brief one either, okay? Join KTL Radio as we welcome Dr. James C. McIntosh to the program for the very first time. Dr. McIntosh is an African media activist, psychiatrist, and author who is the co-founder of CEMOTAP, the Committee to Eliminate Media Offensive to African People. Amongst his many accolades, his most notable is being a devout advocate for the liberation of African people globally tonight. He will be opening up his mind bank to lend some perspective to the onslaught of media assassinations we have witnessed in the last calendar year, Bill Cosby in particular, and speak to the immediate need of an alternative and effective media. Dr. McIntosh, who was also an ex-columnist for the New York Daily Challenge, will also speak from a perspective of a reporter who has steadily been on the beat covering New York politics extensively 
in particular the rise, reign, and rule of Rudolf Giuliani, a subject for which he has published a book called The Unauthorized Psychoanalysis of Rudolf Giuliani. Tune in tonight for this heavyweight episode. Bring your pad and your pen because my friend class is in session and I just want to read some real quick notes from his bio. All right. Uh, the brother graduated from Brooklyn Tech High School in 1964 where he won the first of two region scholarships by a competitive exam to attend Hunter College in the CUNY system of, of the city of New York. At Hunter, Dr. McIntosh participated in a struggle to obtain a Department of Black and Puerto Rican Studies. Dr. McIntosh went on to major in Black and Puerto Rican Studies, where he was mentored by Dr. John Henry Clark and taught by scholars such as Professor Keith Bard, Professor Pearl Primus, Professor James Horton, and Professor Tilden Lamell, and others. Dr. McIntosh won a second region scholarship by competitive exam, okay, and eventually completed Hunter in 72. After college, Dr. McIntosh joined the Nation of Islam and became a member of the Fish Force at Mosque No. 7 while it was under the leadership of Minister Louis Farrakhan. Dr. McIntosh attended the school at night for the next four years to obtain pre-medical science training required for admission to medical school. During this period, Dr. McIntosh took courses at New York Community College in Brooklyn, LIU, Brooklyn Campus, and Hunter College. Dr. McIntosh eventually obtained admission to New Jersey Medical School for the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New York, of New Jersey, where he was a member of Student National Medical Association and a founding member of Black Medics of Newark. Upon graduation at the urging of Professor Clark, Dr. McIntosh came to Harlem Hospital. He completed three years of internship and residency in the Columbia University Psychiatry Program at Harlem Hospital. At Harlem Hospital, Dr. McIntosh became the president of the Harlem House Staff Association and vice president of the Parent Union CIR in 83. Dr. McIntosh was elected president of the union in 1984 and served two terms as president and one additional term as vice president. Dr. McIntosh led the union during the longest successful strike of house staff in the history of the city at Brooklyn Jewish Interfaith Hospital, okay, in 85. During this period, Dr. McIntosh helped found Black Family Collective along with others, including Dr. Marimba Annie, Dr. Keith Jora Hunter, Sister Claudia Gibson Hunter, Sister Maxine McIntosh, and psychologist Amos Wilson. He also completed a joint year fellowship and residency in public and community psychiatry at Montefiore Hospital of Einstein Medical School of Yeshiva University with a clinical assignment at Rikers Island. While there, with the assistance of inmates, he founded a black history and law class for inmates at the North facility. Dr. McIntosh was the founder and owner of the Interns and Resident Licensing Review School, which operated successfully between 87 and 91. He is a founding member of United African Movement and the first chairman of their health committee and the original moderator and prime organizer of their weekly lecture series, which continues today. He is a much sought-after lecturer and the author of several books, including The Unauthorized Psychoanalysis of Rudolf Giuliani, that which cannot be destroyed, state rape, and prosecutorial misconduct. He currently writes for Simo Tap Drum and the Black Star News and is a former columnist, columnist 
for the Daily Challenge newspaper, New York City's only black daily newspaper. Dr. McIntyre served as co-chair of the Queen's Million Man March Coordinating Committee for the first Million Man March and was a co-convener of the third Million Youth March. Dr. McIntyre has received awards from numerous committee community and civic organizations and individuals, including the Best-Sai School of Martial Arts and Science Skills Center, Mosque Number 7 and Nation Islam, Women in Support of the Million Man March, Coalition to Elect a Black Mayor, CMOTAP, NAACP, United African Movement, Africans Helping Africans, New York City Council, 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement Who Care, and, you know, it goes on and on and on and on, family. All right. This brother is a gem in the community. It is an honor to bring him forth. All right. Give me one second. I'm going to call him on freeway. Okay. And bring him in. All right. Give me one second, y'all. Hello? I think I got a call from my number. He's expecting my phone call. Red, are you there? Okay. Red. Hello? Oh, I'm here. My bad. The mute was on. Yeah. All right. Hold All right. it down for a second. I'm going to have to hang up and call on my number. All right. Okay. Yes, sir. KT, you with us? Huh? Is KT with us? Now his line's locked. All right. All right, family. Do me a favor while Brother Blue uh, goes ahead and reconnects his line. Uh, While you're on the call, can you go ahead and update on your social media site, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, or any other platform that you're using, and let them know that you're on Blog Talk Radio right now, that we're live, that we have this brother with this beautiful resume that's going to be about to do a powerful presentation, very informal, very uh, very, very well needed at this point. You know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, we just in for a treat. You know, get your pens and pads ready. I'm sure that the brother's going to bring a level of information that you're going to want to take notes and uh go back into the show and do some studying. All right. And before we forget, 
the uh, the show is sponsored by the show tonight will be sponsored by Kings County dot big cartel dot com. That is K I N G Z K O U N T Y dot big cartel dot com. That is our clothing site where we have about ten new items that are about to be released for the new year's uh new jewelry, new hoodies, new sweatshirts, new designs, new colors, you know what I mean, new colorways. Very, very hot. Very hot in the streets right now, Kings County. Definitely burning up these streets. Um, doing a lot of orders online. Thank you for everybody that have supported the line. I appreciate your support. And uh, we would definitely be bringing a lot more stuff this year. You know, the company is going to, we're going we're gonna to improve. We're going to step it up. You know what I'm saying? And big things are going on. So thank you in advance. But check us out, kingscounty.bigcartel.com. And check out mypowerpieces.com as well. That is M-Y-P-O-W-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-S.com. My Power Pieces for your power pieces, okay? You know what I mean? All right. Blue, you there? All right, he's not there yet. Any moment. Let me think about it. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure if there's anything going on this weekend, too. I just was thinking if there are any events in New York that I know about. But off at the top, I can't say that I do. But I do know coming up uh, in New York City, I believe the brother Sarah Suicetti is going to be at Nicholas um, January 18th. King Simon is bringing him in. Uh, Umar is also going to come. He's going to be in town. I'm not sure if it's this weekend or it's going to be next. No, matter of fact, next Wednesday at the uh, at Automatics at Automatic Spots. You know what I mean? Right there on Atlantic Avenue. Huh? Who's going to be at Automatics? Umar Johnson is going to be there. Uh, okay. And then right after that, Professor Griff is going to be there the next Ooh. Wednesday. Let me open up KT's line. Yeah. Peace, KT. Peace, peace, yeah. Sorry about the line drop. Mm. I'm, I'm no out problem. here driving by these woods. I am. Yeah. We we playing the waiting game. I'm waiting for the brother to call me back. Um, so you know, okay. Well, yeah, this is an introduction leading up to Sunday, January fourth, where uh, Dr. McIntosh will actually be at Tom Mary Temple um, doing a live presentation. It's the first part to a series called the Sun Podium, um, where the first uh, Sunday of every month, um, there will be a different speaker um, coming coming forth to, you know, lay down some information, some knowledge to bring the community uh, the awareness necessary, and we're going to be kicking it off with Dr. McIntosh uh, starting on the 4th. So everybody who's going to get blown away from tonight's presentation who uh, is in the New York area and wants to check the brother out uh, in person. Like I said, he'll be at the Tom Mary Temple, uh, 126 uh, in Lexington, uh, 104, 126, 126th Street um, at the Tom Mary Temple. It'll be a powerful, powerful presentation. We have the flyer on Facebook. 
Um, and, you know, you're more than welcome to share it and uh, get it around to the masses. Right. Absolutely. Seen any good movies lately, bro? <laughs> yeah, I know the people would like to know. Yeah, there's definitely another volume of Hollywood decoded on the way. You know, there's, there's been so many, you know, people still want to hear my take on Equalizer. Um, you know, of course, we got the Gods and Kings. Um, we got the Unbroken, you know, that just dropped. Um, shoot, even even uh, I mean, Take Five was, was uh, I mean, Top Five was dropping some science. Um, and if, then we got a if, lot of if, things on if, the way. Right. If nothing else, you know, the whole world, especially the quote-unquote American audience, bore witness to the power of film, you know what I'm saying? Because people were like, well, why does he decode movies? You know, what is so important about movies? And it was just a slew of articles that came out because of the interview, you know what I'm saying? Because of the yeah. Sony hack that was speaking about not only the importance of movies, but, you know, why they're so imperative in regards to propaganda and the oh, fact that man. They are I mean, you got, you got Obama involved, you know, talking about Sony should have never withdrew and, you know, talks of war and all that just over this film, you know. And I and I got to check the joint out, you know what I mean? And I know a lot of people. You got to, you got to, yeah. Put your, put your gay shades on because it's. Uh, yeah, yeah, they, they were one of those homoerotic. They was rolling on that joint, though, man. They, um, that thing is serious. They talked about some serious issues nonetheless, um, you know, in there. Um, and then also uh, with the top five, what a lot of people don't know was um, Chris Rock's main theme in that film, even though, you know, they called the top five. He was talking about his top five MCs. That was nothing what the movie was about. The movie was actually about him trying to tell the masses and the people that movies have hidden meanings. And and mm. throughout the whole film, they just kept talking, oh, it's just a movie, it's just a movie, it's entertainment. And he was like, no, <laughs> that ain't what it is. These movies tell a message. These movies are created on purpose to, to give a, a message and an energy uh, across, you know, and you need to understand what these movies are trying to say. That's all he kept talking about through the whole movie. Um, you know, it was, it was Hollywood decoded, you know. The, the Sony hack, that was Hollywood decoded. I mean, that that's all that's been going on. You know, so, um, you know, I, I, I just find it quite interesting, you know what I mean, um, that it's all been coming to pass, you know. I mean, you a legend. I ain't got to tell you that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, you've been speaking things into existence. You know, we bore witness with the uh, Dr. Yebo show, but, yeah, it seems that the universe really is uh, backing up your conversation in regards to the need and the importance to not only speak about the importance of movies, but also, you know, to peel them back and expose that, that, that inner skin. Oh, you know, man, definitely. And people, and people are deriving. It's getting thicker and thicker as as the in 2015. Yeah. Hold on, this is the brother. Give me one second. This is it. 
He's here. Calling in any minute now. Okay. All right. Well, I'm gonna go ahead and put uh, my phone on mute. Like I said, I'm over here. No, you're gonna you're gonna make an introduction to him and let him know who you are. And then you can put your phone on mute. All right. Okay. Like I said, man, we thank you for your breakdowns, your analysis. The work that you do, we look forward to more of that this year. Um, I know we're taking this visual campaign to a whole nother level. I just can't wait for the family to get this law of 44. Look, the brother, um, what's the brother's name? Kevin Durant, he returned after being out a number of games for a, a, I think his his ankle was sprained or something like that. So he came back dropped 44 on the Suns in overtime. Now, look, after Kevin Durant just finished dropping 44 in overtime for two times in a row playing for the Houston Rockets around the same time that they just launched the Orion rocket into space at 9.44 a.m., you know what I'm saying? So this conversation is, is, is in hyperspeed. We are on our way to the, uh, you know, third of the blood moons on April 4th. That lecture will be monumental, to say the least. Okay? Gatorade, yeah. I I ain't going to get into it, but yeah. But no further ado, I want to open up the line and welcome welcome in tonight's special guest, our brother, Dr. James C. McIntosh. Call him from the 347-907. Peace. Peace, brother. Greetings. Yes. Greetings. Greetings. Welcome. Peace, brother. Welcome to Know the Ledge. Yes. Yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So we read an introduction before you came in. Um, Briefly explain to the family you know, what it is that you do and your resume, of course. And my co-host here, Brother Kamani Tate, is the son of our brother uh, Edward Tate. So he explained that you have an upcoming lecture Sunday at the Tom Mary Temple as well. And the topic of that discussion is going to be mainly focused on what we see as the media assassination of some of our iconic heroes, but in particular, Bill Cosby, correct? That's right. That's right. Now, um, I basically want to examine the issue of media lynching and to examine, I don't think that most people have even read the details of those things he's being accused of. I mean, let alone that the Issues are 30, 40. One of them is now 50 years old in terms of when they occurred. But the general category is that he is, the people have been saying he's a serial rapist, and yet when you read in details the stories, many of them are doubtful, uh, and most of them do not involve rape as uh, 
you know, as the uh, comedian uh, accused him. They are disturbing stories, don't get me wrong, and we don't want to minimize uh, rape. Rape is one of the most horrible crimes, you know, that can be committed. But there seems to be a, something deeper going on uh, because these things seem so out of sync with the rest of his life uh, and with the rest of uh, the kind of commitment he has shown to certain uh, principles uh, during the course of his lifetime. And when we compare them to the way that the society and the media has handled other rapes that we know actually did occur, you know, there seems to be something, uh, a contradiction. Right. Now, as a psychiatrist, when you prepare your analysis and you write your articles, do you interject your expertise in that field into pretty much looking at what's being said and how it's being said as well? Are you reading underneath the surface for certain key phrases? Well, you know, I some of the things, if a, if a patient comes to me, if a person comes to me and say they've been assaulted or raped, I don't question it at all. And in fact, there are certain contexts in which you just, there, there's, there's no reason to question it. But this is something different. This is not a person that's coming to you for assistance. It's not even a person who's speaking in the privacy of a court. These are blanket accusations that are being made on the Internet. And they're being on the Internet, some of them with little video productions, some of them with uh, television interviews, and it's as though you're not supposed to respond to the contradictions that you hear right within what's being said. For instance, there's uh, – so in, in answer to your question, I don't think that I really have to – I think I don't think I have to apply any particular psychiatric or psychological principles as I listen to the stories. They're just some things that are common sense. Um, uh, if somebody tells you, there's one of the women, she says that Cosby, she came, I think she was in Cosby's dressing room, if I'm not incorrect, where it took place. I have a chart with all of them on there. And she says he right. handed her two pills. And she says, um, uh, what are these? And he says, quaaludes. And then she takes the quaaludes. And then is surprised that, you know, at, at what takes place afterwards. That seems a little strange to me because there's a phrase called looting out that, you know, is well known among drug users, you know, that quaaludes can make you have a blackout. In other words, where you don't remember the stuff that you do, and certainly we know that can make you lose a certain amount of uh, control of uh, of the things that you do. There, there are other situations where, you know, they, each day they announce well, there's a new case, there's a new case. And then when you examine the case, well, what is the case? In one case, Cosby is at home. He goes on a double date with his wife and with another couple. When they get back, the lady's date goes home. His wife goes to bed, and she plays pool with Cosby. At a certain point, she says, he roughly grabbed her and kissed her. Then they have a conversation about interracial kissing, and then when he grabs her again, she left. I mean, that's it, a kiss, and then that's being put on to, uh, you know, I'm not saying that a person should 
I'm not saying that Cosby should cheat on his wife. I'm not saying, but you know, if you hold that standard, there'll be a whole lot of people in Hollywood who's uh, who will have a right. longer list of people accusing them than Cosby. So when I look at the timing of these things, and I look at the history of this particular person, uh, again, it forced me to be suspicious that something else was going on. So I began to do a little investigating. Uh, basically just trying to put together who were these accusers, put together what were the exact things they were saying, and to examine, you know, were, you know, did, did these things, first of all, just seem like they could have happened. You know, not, uh, not a, you know there's no way for me to know uh, what took place 50 years ago, uh, but I do know some things that took place since then that we have on videotape. And... The same people that are trying to lynch Cosby, they say these things didn't happen. You saw Eric Garner killed on videotape, with videotape within the statute of limitations, because there is no statute of limitations, and they say nothing happened. And they want us to be, you know, in a frenzy. I guess they, they would like us to be out in the street demonstrating against Cosby for things that there's no way to prove whether they happened or not. 50 years ago. So that's basically what uh, the talk will be about. I have uh, a history of being involved as a uh, columnist with a few kind of high-profile interracial rape cases here in New York. And uh, they were cases in which there was a white perpetrator and a black victim. And the response of the media, the response of the of the uh, dominant uh, society, of the mass market media, was entirely different from the response to these things that they are saying Bill Cosby did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, I, my work is with an organization, uh, my main work was called the Committee to Eliminate Media Offensive to African People. Yeah. We've been in existence for 27, uh, I'm now going on 28 years. That and was, right. we, you know, we took direct action in these cases that I'm talking about. Um, there was a case we had here in New York, it was called the St. John's Rape Case. And it was yes. a case of a young woman on a rifle team. She was offered a lift by one of her teammates, a young black woman. And one of her white teammates said he had to stop by his frat house to get something. So when they, she stopped by there, they gave her something to drink. And the next thing, she's being assaulted by the entire um, lacrosse team. Lacrosse team. Right. Uh, at the uh, at the at St. John's University at the time, and then they take her from one frat house to the other. Now the mass market media covered the story, but they covered this story in the same way as they cover historical events. If they were to make a media a movie about Harriet Tubman, you know that in there they would be they would find some way to put a white person in the central center of it. That's the hero. In the stories right. of St. John's rape, there was some person named Todd who was supposed to have rescued her. 
And when I read the stories, I believed that, and I was saying, well, that's, that was decent of this guy. But what happened is, is I went to court. My organization went to court, and we listened to the testimony, and then we heard the testimony of the young woman. And when we heard the testimony of the young woman, it turned out God Todd, all he did was when they brought her to a second frat house, he looked at her like kind of like a piece of property. He says, well, who, who brought her here? You know, who does she, more or less like who does she belong to? You know, who is she with? When he finds out, then he takes her back to the first frat house to the people who brought, you know, who brought her over there. And the mm-hmm. newspaper portrayed it as though it was some sort of a, a heroic uh, gesture on his part. We further right. went on to, 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 to watch this and see that the young lady revealed that they actually discussed killing her at a certain point. And when they discussed killing her, I was in the court, and I, at that time I was not writing for any newspaper or anything, I was, but I saw the journalists that were there. And the young lady said that they said, we don't have to kill her because even if she does tell somebody, Look at Tawana Brawley. They're not going to believe it anyway. When they said that, I looked, and mm. none of the people I saw that were journalists were writing anything. So I went home and I wrote a story. That was the first story I wrote. I wrote it for the Daily Challenge, and the next day it was on the front page. You know, and they, it was a front page story. So that's how, um, you, you know, I mean, I'm saying that's the type of involvement we've had in uh, some of those cases. When right. we came to that now, case, those yes, sir. I wanted to ask you, was Simo Tap involved in the Tawana Brawley case in any um, form or fashion? Were you around we, for that? We were involved in the Tawana Brawley case from the very beginning. Uh, I ended up writing a series of articles that were, you know, uh, in my opinion, the only articles that would give, you know, among the few articles that were really giving things from the point of view of the people who were her supporters. There came a point where the system decided that this thing was going to be played as a hoax. But we continued, we, we demonstrated, we did things. At one point we actually blocked up the uh, we blocked up two bridges and the and the BQE expressway. Before that we blocked up the uh the um the um um sorry the F D R drive uh on both of those cases, you know, I was arrested and among you know along with many other people and uh, so we had direct involvement in that we had we went up to albany we did all kinds of things but to for the most part i won't say it was to no avail because i think it made the victim feel better to know that there were thousands of people who believed her and who actually knew the story uh, I think that we made a difference in terms of by putting out the literature, explain the sequence of events to explain the things that made suspects suspects, and that uh, in terms of the financial support we were able to give to the legal team. I think that that also you know, was something that we accomplished. But when someone else controls the system all the way from the point of arrest to the point of indictment, to the point of conviction, to the point of sentencing, to the point of incarceration, and that whole system pulls together against, you know, you you don't get any justice from that system, and that's what happened to that young lady. And it's my understanding now that she's paying money, possibly, this is something that I heard uh, to uh, 
because she has defamed a person by saying that he raped her, you see. And so uh, she's not in New York now, but, you know, it, it really is when you compare that, the, the lack of justice that this young lady could get acting within the statute of limitations with an entire community backing her up, and then you find these cases where people are just uh, coming out of the woodwork talking about things that they said happened 30 and 40 years ago and how they are publicly shaming uh, the person she's, that these women are accusing. Yet in the case of Tawana Brawley, in the grand jury report that was written about her, her name and her family's name is mentioned 28 times in the table of contents alone, and three of the four suspects aren't even mentioned. So, you know, the, the, the discrepancies with respect to media coverage and with respect to uh, the written reports is so blatant. This is what right. has caused us to, again, uh, take some sort of action with regards to the uh, Cosby case. Again, you know, I would never, in a clinical situation, question anybody who said they had been raped. And I wouldn't even, again, question anybody who said they'd been raped in the case of where it's in the privacy of a court or in a legal case. But if people are going to publicly shame one of our icons in the press with uncorroborated, unsubstantiated accusations, I think it's up to someone to examine it and to question those things that are questionable. Indeed. Indeed. Now, um, I just want to touch on the Tawana Brawley case uh, before we continue because that was a case that was very prominent when I was extremely young. You know, it was in media at the time. It's kind of one of the first times that we saw Al Sharpton on the national scene and what have you. Since we knew that there were so many judicial issues at that particular time, you know, was done then and what can still be done in regards to making some policy changes, some systemic changes in the way that these particular cases are presented and prosecuted and things go to the grand jury, we're still seeing, you know, with the Eric Garner situation, with many other situations in the city, that the system is broken, you know. So how does one organize and pretty much um, petition against a broken system? Oh, brother, you know, people have different theories, and, I mean, it depends on whether you believe a thing can be reformed or whether you believe it's so uh, corrupt and so broken that it has, you know, that it, that it takes an entire systemic change. I don't think that uh, simply trying to change things around the issue of rape will uh, change the system. I think that at this point, you know, we've hit one of the contradictions uh, that, that arises when you try to do that because, I think that many of the reforms that rape activists uh, have asked for, you know, the idea that a woman should not be publicly shamed by, you know, uh, uh, talking about irrelevant things that have to do with her past sex life, to say that, um, uh, you, you know, that, that her privacy should be maintained, you know, in the media and things right. like that. I think those, those things are 
are, are good and that they're real. Contradiction we have here is when it's the contradiction I think that um, Ida Wells Barnett spoke about, which is that in the case of interracial rape, the system tries to pretend that there's, there was no relationship between, that in general, when you have those cases where they want to lynch a black man about that, that everyone involved knows that there was a relationship between that black man and that white woman that was clandestine. And, I mean, that, that's not me speaking. That's Ida, well, Ida B. Wells uh, speaking. And I think in uh, several of these cases uh, regarding Cosby that uh, if they occurred, you know, to the extent that they occurred, uh, you know, they didn't occur in exactly the way that is being pre- pre- um, being presented in the uh, media. With respect to changing the criminal justice system, I think that Michelle Alexander and a lot of other people that do this full-time could tell you what kinds of reforms would be helpful, uh, you know, and, and I, I don't think I'm qualified to, to do that. I have an opinion like everybody else has an opinion, but as you said before, you know, as, 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 you know the saying, opinion is like a nose. Everybody's got one, you know, so uh, I, I don't know what value it would be. But I know that there, I'll tell you some of the I'll tell you some of the key things that do need to be reformed. I don't think that selective prosecution should be permitted. Selective prosecution is what goes on now. You know, sometimes the government has programs in which they will go after only black elected officials. That's that's selected prosecution. It doesn't mean that the black elected official didn't do what sometimes what is he's being accused of having been done. But if you're not going to examine all of them, if you're going to selectively prosecute only some, uh, that's uh, not not going to work. I think that um, differential sentencing, you know, where uh, you send some people to jail for long periods of time for a certain amount of cocaine uh, if it's in the crack form, and then you send other people who are supposed to be uh, uh, bourgeois uses, uh, you know, of the uh, of, of uh, powdered cocaine, and you sentence them to no time or short periods of time. I, I think those kinds of discrepancies in sentencing need to be done. I think that there are discrepancies in terms of. I said selective prosecution is also selective investigation. You know, if you have one community which you know is using more drugs. Yet you in in the other community, in the black community, you have people less people using drugs, but more of them fill up the prison system. Clearly, those are things that uh, have to be corrected. If you have uh, one person who can be convicted in the press with stuff that you can't see that happened 50 years ago, and you have other people like the police who are never prosecuted, even when you have videotapes showing them doing the things that you are accusing them of. See, these are things that are broken. How could you ask me, how could we fix it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it, it, uh, the only way I can fix it is to kind of uh, tell you what's wrong with it. But to fix it will take something stronger than, uh, than, than just some discussion. Indeed. Indeed. Now, you have been in media for a minute. You've had your finger on the pulse. Um, you wrote an unauthorized book about Rudolph Giuliani. Yes, the unauthorized unauthorized psychoanalysis of Rudolph Giuliani. Yes, I did. Yes, indeed. That was a book serialized in the Amsterdam News. uh, The first seven chapters were 
serialized in the Amsterdam News in a weekly, uh, you know, in a weekly uh, fashion. Then it was the, play, you know put into a book and uh, you know released. So when we see situations such as you know the comments and what have you that he's been making as of lately, when we see these situations arise and Giuliani's rearing his head and pretty much leading the charge um, for mm-hmm. representing a Yeah, this is a totally uh, disgraced and uh, a person exposed as being unprincipled. Uh, Now trying to appear like an elder statesman, he's going to come and give advice as though it's objective uh, uh, advice to uh, de Blasio. Uh, And, you know, and among his objective advice, he's going to advise uh, de Blasio to apologize and these sorts of things. Uh, you know, it's 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 really a a, a joke. Uh, it would be a joke if it just just hadn't been so deadly for black people the policies that he instituted when he was the mayor, and it sets up a very dangerous climate because when uh, they are able to they are able to present the problem as being de Blasio's weakness as opposed to the um, police being too powerful, then what happens is is that they'll let certain things occur so that the people start clamoring for the return of the strongman. And the return of the strongman is the right-wing Rudolph Giuliani and his type. It's a very, very dangerous situation. Do you see parallels to that um, on the on a national stage in terms of like even with the president? Uh, parallels to other, certainly. I mean, I think the Republicans kind of swept into uh, uh, into office, and I think you had the same type of attempt to appease uh, and to uh, seek bipartisanship and that sort of thing. Uh, you know. Um, Obama might have had a minute when he could have struck without needing, you know, the Republicans' uh, support. When he missed that moment, uh, you know, he was basically rendered uh, fairly ineffective. Uh, And I think that de Blasio, when those cops turned their backs on him in that place, as the chief executive, he should have, and he gets the right to appoint the police chief, he should have had the police chief single out those leaders that were in there and fire them immediately, even if they were able to get back in with the unit. If, if once he, once you got the military defying and actually uh, opposing the civilian authority that's over them, that's a very dangerous situation. And if it's not handled immediately, then it's downhill from there. And you see, when he didn't act on it that first time. Then they did it at the funeral. Uh, so, yes. so, uh, and now he's been positioned uh, where, you know, he's been he's been portrayed as having said something unreasonable when he said that he has to advise his son to be careful with. But any person who's got a black son has got to advise them of the proper behavior to avoid getting killed when they come into confrontation with the police. 
So there was nothing unusual he said about that, but that angered the police so badly. They talked about that it, you know, uh, that he was attacking them. It's, 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 it's amazing. It's amazing. But, uh, yes, I could say in one respect that it is a parallel, but I, the question is, I, I don't know if, the, you know, if it's been answered, what is de Blasio going to do in the face of uh, that type of pressure? You know, this is where the rubber hits the road. And uh, it looks like uh, he'll probably uh, cave and that uh, things are getting ready to go downhill from here with respect to police uh, violence and police terror. Mm. So, I mean, I mean that's how analyzing. I'm, I'm very interested in the dialogue. You know, I'm not trying to present myself as any uh, expert on these things. You know, I, I mean, I have my experience, but I'm very interested in, and how you see it, and, and you know, if, 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 if the way I'm saying it doesn't sound right, you'll pull my coat so that I can learn. No, I absolutely agree, you know. Definitely for the most part, I see a level of insurrection that is not only identifiable on a local level, but it seems to be the same game that the Republicans are playing nationally, you know, with the president. They're looking at these Democrats, and they're opposing you know, they're, they're pretty much implanting certain ideas in people's minds and using race using a race card to drum up these thoughts that, look, these people do not know how to control these, quote-unquote, other people over here. All right? So as a result, you know, if you don't give us the power and the authority to put them in line, to put them in check, then you're going to be, you know, in some way threatened, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So right. people are willing right. to throw away safety. Yes, huh? I was agreeing with you because he, I said because he is dependent upon them for his own safety, you know. In, in um, both instances, right. The president yeah. has to depend upon, you know, the Secret Service slash military for his protection, and the Blasio has to depend upon the NYPD NYPD for his protection as well. And, uh, you know, when David Dinkins was in office, they actually had kind of a mini police riot there at City Hall. 10,000 of them. Yeah. Banged on the windows. Out of the doors. It was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, um, it was bad. And this is and pretty I, much why I'm asking you, not so much as an expert, but as somebody who has had their fingers on the pulse, especially you know, Giuliani, Giuliani orchestrated that coup, and that's pretty much what served as his rise into power when they stormed City Hall, you know, and pretty much proverbially threw Dinkin out on his ass and installed, you know what I'm saying, Giuliani as a, uh, as a czar. So now we see him still up to his dirty tricks knowing that he's doing this for a higher Republican machine that not only wants to debase de Blasio here in New York, but also show weakness of Democrats on a national stage so now they could bring in uh, Jeb or whoever, whatever Republican they plan on bringing in, and these policies will be implemented nationwide. You know, the military and and, and the police are not going to be you know, they're not going to all of a sudden lose this level of arrogance that they have in regards to their policing. 
in the military and the police across the country, only across the world, you know, I think that it's this attitude that's exported throughout the planet, you know what I'm saying, that it's taking root here, and that's what we're seeing. And people are not looking at the bigger problem or the bigger issue. You know, what's their diet? Their diet is talk radio every day. Their diet is Fox News. Their diet is the New York Post, you know. This is what they're being fed, and this is the arrogance, and this is the attitude, and this is the blowback, you know, so... I mean that's pretty much what I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean I I, I think uh, we're uh, you know going full circle to these um, uh, to this uh, uh, these sexual scandals. I think it's very interesting that with uh, Bill Cosby, they dig and dig and dig. They're finding every Playboy bunny that says he pinched them. They're finding everything that goes on. Yeah, we had a governor here who got busted taking a young girl across state lines uh, for the purposes of prostitution. And you never heard one other case. Here it is, this middle-aged man, and you are to believe that he only involved himself with one prostitute. And even though he used um, state funds They found his name in the book. Say that again. Didn't they find his name in the book? Uh, you mean in, of the of the uh, of the madam of the you know of the, the madam? Uh, yes, he was yeah. client number nine or something like that. So exactly. she had his name in the book, and he was popular amongst other prostitutes for you know his particular ways. Like there was more cases that popped up other than the uh, the young lady that he got caught with. But they didn't give us the date. It was never pursued. Yeah. But they, they didn't give us a day-by-day count. Another one says he was with her. Another one said, now we're up to 22 that say he uh, uh, did this. And, you know, they didn't go into any details. You know, with, with Cosby, they're going to every single detail of what they said. Uh, he, he, he roughly grabbed her and kissed her, that sort of thing. But we didn't have that, and we didn't have any clamor for his, uh, his being prosecuted. You know, nobody uh, said, well, he violated any particular act, taking a woman across lines for, you know, state lines for the purpose of prosecution. You know, those sorts of things didn't come up. There was no investigation of it. There was no more mention of it. In fact, he was able to rehabilitate himself to the point that he ran for uh, office here in New York, uh, in the city, uh, just, you know, just a year or two ago. He came um, back. Wiener came back. And Julianne was trying to make a comeback. Giuliani is trying to make a comeback. Bill Clinton got a pass. Giuliani lived, uh, Giuliani married his own cousin for over a decade uh, and then claimed, then went and got an annulment claiming he didn't know. And hardly a mention has ever been made of that in the press, even though both he and the wife were fairly high profile. And then with his racial views, it, it was never exposed that the woman, that his cousin, wife, cousin, Chinatown, you know the movie, right, where they slapped the guy, you know, yeah. which one is, you know, uh, never made any fact of it that when she left him, she lived with a black man until the day he died. Uh, mm. you, know, uh, you know, so they, they say that a news is not 
when a dog bites a man. A news is when a man bites a dog. But with every man bites dog story that involves uh, uh, whites of a certain uh, degree of power, we don't get the kind of uh, public shaming and public conviction without a trial that they do. You just let's call it a lynching. That's what a lynching is. It's that conviction. It's the assassination, the character assassination without a trial. We don't get that, the things they do to uh, black celebrities and black leaders. Indeed. Now, as a member of Seymour Tat, with over 20-plus years of experience, you know, with your finger on the pulse of especially New York City media, okay, <laughs> can you speak about, you know, what you've been up against in terms of powerhouses, you know what I'm saying, the, the editors behind the New York Post and Daily News and all of these different rag mags and what have you. If you it know, how important been, is media in New York? Well, you know, if it had just been the editors and the publishers, we would have won. But we had to learn that it was far beyond that. We had a pro a, a campaign in the late 80s, early 90s called the Postbuster Campaign, where literally we had some degree of support from maybe uh, 200 churches and where we reduced uh, their circulation, reduced the circulation of the New York Post as documented by Earl Caldwell and by uh, Wilbur Tatum that we had reduced the New York Post circulation to two, by 200,000. We reduced it because they had very bad coverage. They only portrayed black people in the areas of sports, crime, and entertainment uh, on three out of four days. 100% of the pictures were in the areas of sports, crime, and entertainment. And on those, that fourth day when, you know, uh, it wasn't, that 25% of the time that it wasn't, it still brought it to where 94% of the time overall, they covered black people only in the areas of sports, crime, and entertainment. And we brought them to the point of where they were fabricating their um, circulation statistics and eventually went bankrupt. A uh, black man uh, in coalition uh, with a, a Jewish guy, Wilbur uh, Tatum, another guy, they, they put the highest bid for the newspaper. And the people who worked at the Post, paper over. They took the building over. They published a, a, an edition called the Teardrop Issue in which the uh, personage of uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's on their cover every day, they've had him with a teardrop. It's called the Teardrop Issue. And as Andy Gill used to say, not the governor, the, the mayor, or anyone uh, lifted a hand to stop that illegal action. And in fact, the FCC permitted Rupert Murdoch, a person who had already been ruled, you know, not qualified or to say that he couldn't legitimately own the post, allowed him to purchase the post back. He had to give up the post before when he had purchased a major network in the same city where he had a uh, right. a daily newspaper. That was a, a regulation. Monopoly clause, right. And he had already had but they allowed him to reacquire the newspaper 
even though it was against their own regulations, and even though we went down to the FCC with busloads to lobby on behalf of um, allowing this black man to buy the the newspaper. He had the highest bid in and uh, so on and so forth. The the, The workers had taken the paper over illegally. So it wasn't just publisher. It wasn't just the editors. It was the coalition of those publishers who were permitted, one, to lateral the newspaper off like a football, one to the other, illegally, and then the regulators or the referees, the FCC, uh, they were also in on it. And so all of the efforts, the successful efforts we had at reducing their, um, reducing their advertising, reducing their circulation, uh, was nullified by the system's collusion to allow that racist newspaper to continue to exist. Uh, you know, we've had other situations where we are uh, this. In fact, I'm in the New York Law Journal. We had a case where we had a broadcaster here who began doing mock assassinations of black leaders on the airwaves. Uh, he would literally... Uh, do it complete with the sounds of uh, gunfire and explosions. Uh, and he did these mock, associate, uh, mock assassinations, and I began to write a series of articles against hate radio and against uh, radio lynching, and we got a lot of support. And in his anger, he went on a rant and said that I was uh, not a real doctor, that I was a phony doctor, so on and so forth. And uh, I really, when he did that, since there's a special tort specifically against the libeling of a physician and surgeon, in other words, it's not just like you libel anybody else. If you libel a physician and surgeon, there's a specific civil law against that. And uh, when he did that, of course, I sued. And the judge made a decision that made the New York Law Journal under the headline, court says it's all right to call a doctor a phony MD. Wow. See, that's the system. I mean, the law is there. The law is there on my side. But when they execute it, uh, you know, uh, they were all, uh, as a friend of mine said, uh, urinate not the same straw. Wow. And that was so never you, overturned. That was never appealed. Court says it's okay to call Doctor Phony MD. You never brought that to a higher court. Did it stand as such? Maybe we could have gotten a different result if we brought it to a higher court. Maybe we wouldn't wouldn't have. I wasn't right. able to. You know, at at the time, I could only do what I did. Right. So the racist structure in New York City is pretty systemic. It's built in from all sides of the top. It's dug in around this planet, man, and with some new proxy players. <laughs> they got some honorary whites that are doing the same thing, you know, uh, all over the continent of Africa. So it's, 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 it's dug in, it's entrenched, it's systemic, and... Um, it's, 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 it, and I know you know it's a, it's, it's a hard fight, and you can't, you, you know, you can't 
sit and let them character assassinate every leader or every uh, person who stands as a model uh, of behavior before your community. You know, you, you know, we don't have many of our uh, people who have come into what you would call big money or fairly big money. None of them have come into real big money. I mean, none of them have come into that Bill Gates type of money. But, you know, those that do come into Luma, we don't have many of them that have turned around and supported the um, historically black college and universities in the way that the Cosbys have. We don't have many that have supported uh, our own cultural um, contribution uh, to this uh, continent, which is uh, jazz music, uh, in the way that he has. I mean, uh, basically uh, maintaining housing and and other uh, uh, care for uh, elderly and infirm jazz musicians that have come into you know uh, you know come on hard times. You know, that's something that right. that he did. Uh, we don't have any that I know of since Paul Robeson that have put out something like Black History Lost, Stolen, Astray, which if you haven't seen it, you should you should look at it. I mean, it's a great Black History uh, um, exposition by a major major Hollywood figure. You just don't get that. You know, usually you get weak things from them. It's a strong statement. Uh, so, you know, um, it's not necessarily that I agreed with the image that they were trying to project on, you know, uh, uh, you know, with Huxtables, but it was certainly a head and shoulder above any other black images that were on the uh, TV. So, right. you know, you can't, you, 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 when you see that his troubles begin immediately after he tries to acquire power by purchasing uh, NBC, trying to purchase NBC, and you see that immediately after that, his son gets found murdered on the road under very suspicious circumstances by uh, a Russian who takes care to mention in his literal apology that he's a Christian. And when you see that um, after that, uh, a love child, a white love child comes out of the woodwork, adult love child comes out of the woodwork, uh, who is never proven to be his child. And then you see he starts to get all of these cases, uh, uh, like I said, more suits than, than, than in the Steve Harvey collection. You know, you, 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 you can't just take that stuff at surface value. you got to look at it a little bit. And that's what we're going to do on Sunday, on Sunday at 2 p.m. at the Tamari Temple at uh, 104 126th Street, uh, we're going to take a look at it, complete with charts, complete with videos, complete with um, uh, uh, psychoanalytic theory ranging from uh, from Freud to Amos Wilson. You know, we're going to take a look at Cosby and the accusers, and uh, and we'll see what our community thinks is going on uh, after you get a more balanced view than the one that you're getting in the uh, uh, in the in the mass market media. Indeed. Now, if there are some aspiring journalists on the line, you know, even some aspiring editors for that matter, what can you suggest in regards to one going about becoming a voice in media or ultimately creating their own their own lane, their own papers, their own news broadcasts, their own radio programs such as this? 
They got to organize. They got to organize. Instead of each person thinking of doing an individual thing, you need to form an association of young people that want to do this type of thing. You also need to look back at your own history, at the efforts that have been made in the past, and not try to reinvent the wheel. You know, you should take a look at what Ida Wells Barnett did. You should take a look at um, uh, what, if, or even what uh, was done here, you know, in, in, in New York City with the Daily Challenge and other, uh, you know, which is New York's only black daily, and with the uh, City Sun, with the uh, the history of those things, and see where the what were the successes they had, what were the causes of uh, when they when, they, when you know what was the cause of their demise when they left, and work together. You know, don't you? you, you everybody. Sh- I don't think that everybody should just have their own little, um, you know, um, newsletter. I think that if you're going to try to do a newspaper, either online or actual uh, with actual distribution, that a few of our bright lights need to get together, and that they need to also be willing to sacrifice and uh, sacrifice making money. You know, you're not going to make money uh, doing something that's totally counter to the system. At least initially, you won't. Usually. Indeed. Yeah, you have to be. Yeah, you have I to had be. a uh, right. had a newspaper for six years, so I could attest to that. <laughs> wow. Okay. Okay. You know, because the problems of the black press have been that they do most of their writing. And I'm not, and look, they're all we have. I'm not trying to criticize everything black-owned and operated. I want, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know where we would be without the black press. But because of the uh, limited resources and that sort of thing, we don't get the kind of investigative journalism that the other side can do. You know, the other right. side digs up every, if, if if you have a, a black victim, like, uh, for instance, Brown, they dig up everything negative that they can come up with against the victim to try to exonerate the perpetrator. And when it's the other yeah, way around, they, they do it reverse. You know, so, uh, uh, so, so we need investigative journalists. We need, um, you know, I, I, I was at the... Um, in Baltimore at the uh, Blacks and Wax Museum. And I saw something, you know, I was a black history major, so, you know, I, I mean, I don't think I know everything, but I thought I knew the Mary Turner Lynch case. You know, I had read it in uh, uh, before the Mayflower and a few other books, and so I thought I knew about it until I found out about this journalist, and I can't remember what his name is, Walter White, Walter, I think his name was Walter White, Walter Williams. At any rate, he was a very light-skinned black man, and he actually went and stood among the crowd at that lynching and reported it. And, you know, if he'd have been discovered, you know, he was a dead man. And right. The, the the lynching was so horrible that no history book has told everything that occurred. As you know, they lynched Mary Turner's husband, and then when she protested, they proceed, she was pregnant, they proceeded to lynch her and cut her belly open and, and let the baby fall out on the floor and stomped it to death. 
But Walter was there, the brother that, and he wrote that what they did next is so barbaric, you've never seen it written anywhere. But it's in the Blacks and Wax Museum, you can see the, uh, you know, the, the details. Uh, they sold two cats up inside of her, sold them in there, and, you know, placed bets to see which one would be able to claw its way out first. You see, this this barbarity, they don't, they want to bury, they don't want to talk about. But it's black journalists who have preserved that history, and uh, I think that any young people, they need to learn really the standard that has been set by people like that. Uh, as I said before, like Ida Wells uh, Barnett, you know, who would go to the sites of the lynchings and took statistics on who were actually lynched for. You know, the average person was thinking that people were lynched about raping white women, and it wasn't about that at all. Right? The majority of the cases, you know, they were about they would be about things like somebody uh, not wanting to pay somebody their wages or uh, somebody wanting to take somebody else's land or other sorts of uh, disputes. And um, she would go before the body was cold. You know, this this lone woman, um, you know, it's a high standard. And I, I know I can't reach it, but, you know, I think it's something we should aspire towards. That's incredible. Yeah, man. You know, the strength you. that it takes to... Whew. We have a saying, uh, you know, uh, in CMOTAP, uh, when if you start complaining about something, we look. We say, Harry wouldn't feel sorry for you. You know, Harry Tubman wouldn't feel sorry for you, because you know when you read about what she had to go through, you know, you realize that right. uh, these you know, right. you know, please come on, you know, uh, I uh, there's a contemporaneous uh, a history of of, of her life that was written while she was alive. It's her dictating it uh, to this uh, European woman. It's on the, online, actually. I think, it's called, I think it's called A Life and Times of Harry Tubman. And so she describes uh, her day when she was uh, with the Union Army. Uh, I think that one of the things that people haven't looked at is just how practical she was and basically what a... Um, Revolutionary she was because Harriet was she, she she you know when you say no permanent friends no permanent enemies she exhibited that she was ready to pick up arms against the United States just a couple of years before the Civil War she was supposed to be with John Brown at John Brown's raid and she got sick and she lamented that till the day she died that she wasn't able to be there so she was ready to pick mm. up arms against the United States but then when she saw a way that she could free some black people by being a part of it, and then she joined the Army. You know, it wasn't like she was for or against. She was for our freedom. And so she right. joined a, a unit with a guy she knew had been involved in those uh, uh, wars down over in Kansas, down there in Kansas, and she uh, tended to the sick, and she describes how she would take a block of ice from the hospital. She would go to the hospital, get a block of ice, put it in a pan, let it melt, and wipe away the cakes 
flies and blood from the wounds of the soldiers. And she would go until that water got, you know, too red, and then she'd go and said that the soldiers loved her. They called her Auntie Harriet. And then there were testimonials from officers and stuff who were there about the work that she did. And one of them wrote about how when a case of dysentery broke out, she went down by the river and got some herbs and stuff and made something to cure the men's dysentery. And so when I would do my lecture on the history of blacks and science and medicine, I said, wait a minute, a nurse, they're talking about Harriet Tubman as the nurse. A nurse doesn't make medicine. A nurse doesn't right. prescribe medicine. Uh, you know, she wasn't a nurse. <laughs> she was a doctor. So I call her Dr. Harriet Tubman. And, um, That's right. You know, we have, we have um, lots of ancestors that were strong like that. In fact, the Cosby's helped a writer here in New York who wrote about uh, a brother I had never heard of. Uh, it, the sister's name was Abiola Sinclair. And she made uh, uh, like a black history journal. I don't remember the exact name of it. It had a few editions. Uh, unfortunately, she died young. And so, uh, but, you know, the, the Cosbys, uh, you know, helped, um, you know, helped her put those editions out. And she wrote one about a brother named David Ruggles. And a David Ruggles was, uh, well, I guess what you would call a black abolitionist up here in uh, uh, New York. But he was so bad that... Um, they used to send this, you know, in around 1827, after the the, the blacks were freed here in, in, in New York, supposedly, um, mm-hmm. slave ships would still come and snatch people off the street and take them back down you know, to the rest of the country where, you know, uh, they didn't have emancipation. Ruggles right. would sneak onto one of those ships, dressed like a sailor, dress himself up like a sailor, sneaked on that ship knocked the captain out and freed the three uh, hostages or so that were on there, you know, getting ready to go back into slavery uh, and did similar things uh, going in. One time he disguised himself as a chimney sweep and broke in and, and, and rescued a woman who was being held captive because servitude was just like slavery after 1827. In fact, you know uh, our sister, the one they call Surgeon Truth, she got trapped off like that. She had to be freed twice because of that situation of where they kind of just put you right back in slavery, call you a servant, but keep you as a slave. Right. Yeah, you know, I digress, man, so. <laughs> yeah. No, not at all, brother. We're sharing some, some prices with the family. Now, on your beat as a reporter for the Daily Challenge, were you ever a quote-unquote beat reporter? Like, did you ever go out there and do any on-scene investigations or, you know, anything crossing the quote-unquote police line to do reporting? Mm, that's a that's an interesting question. I was actually a columnist. You know, I was a physician during the time that I was a columnist for uh, for the Daily Challenge. So uh, I used to write my stories in between patients and then uh, fax them to uh, Dwight Phillips, and then he would put them out. But, you know, uh, there were some, some, you know, some things that I did. I mean, certainly the demonstrations and those things that we did, I was, you know, I was there. They were written, you know, uh, firsthand. Um, 
so so I mean I I would say yes and no. In the main, I was a you know I was a uh, a columnist, but I I did have direct contact with the people that I you know that I wrote wrote about and the incidents that I wrote about. But I was not. Right. I mean I don't guess you would call me an investigative journalist uh, so much. And, th- and that's what I'm saying we do lack. You know, that requires, that's a full-time uh, thing. When you take people like who, like you take a Wayne Barrett who would write for the, uh, you know, for the for the, uh, the Village Voice uh, and did some real good investigative pieces, you know, you read and you see the different assistants that he had. You know, credit would have to be given to various assistants who did things. And, I mean, uh, when, you, when you have the real uh, uh, investigative reporters, they have investigators. You know, they have people who can go yes. and dig. And there are so many stories where, uh, when that 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 our pet press can only print from the surface because they don't uh, seem to have those resources. And as long as we are buying the white press and spending our money, uh, fattening up you know, the, 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 the press that's degrading us, we won't have a viable black press, you know, until uh, until we support our own. CMOTAP did fun drives. I agree. At one point where we used to try to, uh, we used to urge the set, we had about seven black weeklies in New York. Uh, we had one that was called, I think, let's see, we had Big Red, we had the City Sun, we had the Black American, we had the Amsterdam News, and of course we had the Daily, the Daily Challenge. And we had a couple others that I really just can't even remember now. I think one might have been called the Harlem Connection or something. Another might have been called the Newport mm-hmm. News. I don't really remember them all. But, you know, we used to have, we had a, um, like a, 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 a drive for subscriptions for all of them, and then we invited them to come to a forum because our position was that they should all combine to form one strong black daily. But right. for whatever reasons, they, they really, they never wanted that. They all had dreams of individual newspaper with uh, that would attract, and they all were, um, very often, many of them were locked into the idea that they were going to get some big white advertising uh, that would kind of, push them over the top and make them economically viable. But I don't think that people really realize how nationalistic uh, Europeans are. Um, it's not like accidental that they don't advertise. That It's not accidental that they would prefer to advertise in a white newspaper with a big black readership than a black newspaper. That's not accidental. That's that's by choice. You know, that's by right. a, a conscious uh, decision. So, um, you know, because of, of us not really understanding that, uh, we, we, you know, we, we all fall into these traps of uh, individualism that, um, you know, that don't really do us good as a collective. Now, with what we collectively witnessed throughout the calendar year of 2014, you know, culminating pretty much with Bill Cosby, a lot of the assassination campaigns began early in the year uh, with TMZ. Um, going through all that we saw last year and some people still not able to see things for what they are 
and formulate their own idea of actually what it is that they did see, in fact, you know, what would be your suggestions, you know what I'm saying, to somebody that just can't see it for what it is for whatever reason at this particular point? Are those people to be totally just uh, not so much discarded, but you know how they say you can't save everyone? And, um, you know, only those with eyes should see and those with ears shall hear. Are we living in those times where only a select number of people can actually see this thing for what it is? Well, I I think that, you know, if you look at, say, Nazi Germany, there there were some people that were so German, literally. I mean, I saw it, you know, I've seen this. Literally, they were in the concentration camp trying to show the German guards their medals from World War One. Like, in other words, this is World War Two, and they are in the concentration camps, and they still are not getting it that these people want to kill them. And, you know, uh, you, you can see there's some series uh, on the so-called Heroes Channel, the uh, military channel, um, in which they show you how they um, – the German guards laughed at them, you know, but there came, wow. a point, there came a point, though, where, you know, basically everybody got it, you know, and you didn't have to do a whole lot of conversation. Everybody got it. Now, what it is is you want our people to get it before that point. And uh, I can't write anybody off. I just think that, uh, but you have to start first among the believers. You know, you got to start with those people and you got to work and you got to be, Creative, how you can promote understanding. You can't stop. You can't stop. You can't stop working and organizing and doing those things in order to 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 try to get people that are totally against you. But at the same time, whatever you can, you know, whatever you because people people their eyes get open by. Various experiences. I, I know Professor Clark used to talk about Gandhi. He talked about, I mean, he used to make it very funny. He would say, John Henry Clark, he would talk about Gandhi in South Africa yes. when he thought he was, you know, in one of these higher castes uh, than the blacks. And he was on some train. And he said there he was with his bowler hat and his spats. And he said, you know, there came a point where they uh, made the, you know, uh, the colors go to another section. And then they put him, you know, and, and basically he kept going down down the rung of caste that there were in South Africa. And eventually he's put completely off the train, Professor Clark said, and then he got it. You know, uh, a lot of times people, they wait until the guards are laughing at them about their medals before they get it. But, you know, uh, sometimes they get it before that. In Gandhi's case, he got it a little before that. Indeed. And that was going to be my um, part in question to you. You mentioned Dr. John Henry Clark, and I know that the brother just had a birthday yesterday, I believe. Yes, yesterday was um, his 100th birthday. I mean, you know, he, he, he passed in 1998. But it, you know, yes, indeed. We still honor and the brother, of course. I wanted you to, you know, briefly speak on the brother, you know what I'm saying, some of my audience or the majority of my audience are very familiar with him. Um, 
but some may have never probably heard any personal accounts of his teaching tactics and, you know, just the sort of iconic figure that he was. Do you have anything that you might want to share, any stories? Sure. Um, In fact, I'm going to email you a story I wrote called John Henry Clark, Master Psychiatrist. Uh, But Professor Clark was born uh, into a a modern system of slavery that people don't usually get out of. It's the system of slavery called sharecropping. And so figuratively, uh, he was born with his name on a plow. But he exhibited uh, certain characteristics, even as a young man, that let uh, members of his community know that he uh, needed to be assisted to get out of that system, and he did. And along the way, he read some black history literature, and he read an essay by a brother named Arthur Schomburg. And when Professor Clark talks about Arthur Schomburg, he explains that Arthur Schomburg was a Puerto Rican of African ancestry, you know, with dark brown skin and a German name. And um, he, when he read... Schomburg's essay about our history, he he came up here to New York, made his way up to New York as a young man, and asked Arthur Schomburg to teach him everything that he knew about black history. Now, Arthur Schomburg, just for, so people who might not know this, he had been told when he was a boy that he came from a people that had no history. And so he became obsessed with acquiring books and information about uh by and about black people. And so he had amassed a collection that was so large that the New York City Library in the late 20s and early 30s used to borrow his books. You get me? And so he was eventually made the first curator of the Schomburg uh, uh, Library, which is up on 135th Street. And um, and Clark made his way to him. And Schomburg told him that what he needed to do was that, that, that black history was the missing part of world history, that he needed to go master world history. And so Professor Clark uh, set about doing that. And then at a certain point in Harlem, you know, he was an activist. He, he uh, was um, – his own experiences had led him to see – some of the contradictions that were being pointed out by the Communist Party. And so he kind of gravitated towards them at a certain point. But it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't simply, uh, say, Marxist analysis or anything. It was the experiences he had had. He he tells how his father had uh, taken him one day and told him, look, if you work hard, you can get this. And I think he must have showed him about $18, whatever it was he had made that month or whatever that you could work hard. And Professor Clark said that he had already observed that he had seen many people who worked hard and had nothing and other people who hardly worked at all and had a lot. And so, though you know, that his father's advice was kind of he, he could see that that wasn't the total explanation to the social order that he was, you know, experiencing in the South. And so he kind of got involved with the Communist Party with, uh, with you know, with activities here in New York. And he also um, got involved with literature. He was a member of the Harlem, um, uh, Harlem Book Club, Harlem Writers Club, pardon me, and also a member of the um, Harlem History Club. 
And in this history club, this was really the university in which he sharpened his uh, his skills. He they would uh, you know you would have to research something, and then you'd come and you'd present to the other members of the club, and then there would be rigorous kind of cross examination of uh, what you were presenting as your facts, and you know it made you very very sharp. There was some a hierarchy in Hall, and they used to do street corner lecturing. I don't remember the hierarchy. I don't remember whether 7th Avenue was over Lenox Avenue or Lenox over 8th or whatever. Right. You know, you would start out on one corner, and you had to work your way up till you got to that highest corner. And so Professor Clark did those things. Now, when I was in um, uh, Hunter College, I started Hunter College in 1964, and I went away to the uh, – Army, when I came back in three years, uh, let's see, 60, let's say 64, yeah, no, no, pardon me, in uh, 66, I went into the uh, Army, and I came back in about 69, early 69. Uh, we were, you know, by this time, there was a certain consciousness that was going on, and as a member of the Black Student Union, we uh, demanded a Black Studies Department at Hunter College, and we uh, demanded Professor that Professor Clark be one of the faculty members. Now, Professor Clark at that time had only a GED and a year and a half of college. So he was totally against all the college's rules for him to be on the faculty there. But we made uh, enough, uh, we took enough action so that they had to hire him. When he hired, once they hired him, he was able to show them that they could take their PhDs and make toilet paper out of them. I've literally seen him go into the faculty council and wipe them all out. I mean, he'd tell the French uh, instructors what they didn't know about French literature. He would break down the several generations of the Dumas family, uh, you know, from the military to the to the you know to the literature. He would he would take the Russians and tell them what they didn't know about Pushkin, what they didn't know. He would take the math people and tell them what they didn't know about the. Uh, you know, the mysteries of the pyramid, what they didn't know about pi, what they didn't know about the uh, origin of uh, of uh, Greek mathematical knowledge, et cetera. And, and, and I mean, uh, eventually the college came to view him as one of their most valuable uh, assets uh, because he That's went on right. to earn, uh, you know, all of the bourgeois credentials that they thought you should have. And uh, ultimately he was made a chairman of a department there at Hunter College, and now wow. uh, they – uh, will probably be one of the uh, places that organizes a celebration for this hundredth anniversary of his uh, of his uh, of his birth. But he was the kind of professor that many of the people became introduced to Professor Clark after he had had some strokes. After he became blind, when Professor Clark was around fifty-eight years old, that's when he came to Hunter College, and he um, he he was the type of professor that if you he he would tell you the page and the paragraph. He would go count off of only on page this, that, and the other. And if you showed an interest in it, the next day he would hand you a Xerox copy of that when he saw you in the hall. He seemed to have a photographic memory and um, mm. was very, very uh, interested uh, in the students. And I worked as a student aide in the Department of Black and Puerto Rican Studies and later came to understand that I had the kind of education in the city university system that people get when they go to these uh, Ivy League colleges uh, in the honors program at um, 
at, at, at Harvard because we would sit in the black studies office and we'd be chatting with uh, scholars like Keith Baird and Professor uh, John Henry Clark and Tilden Lamell and all of these giants in black history. And, um, you know, they, 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 they treated us like, like their children. And uh, it ended up where, I mean, Professor Clark ended up being about, uh, well, along with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad and Minister Farrakhan, I mean, the, uh, uh, Professor Clark ended up being one of the greatest uh, influences in my life. I mean, it, it determined where I lived, who I married, what I named my kids, uh, where I worked. Uh, when I finished medical school, uh, I didn't participate in the match where you send the, the applications out to schools all over the, you know, hospitals all over the country. I asked Professor Clark, where should I do residency? He said, well, you should come to Harlem Hospital. So I, I went to Harlem Hospital. And uh, I ended up naming my youngest son. Well, I, all my children were influenced by names that he taught me about, but uh, my youngest son, I named him uh, after Olefi Asante and Professor Clark. Um, Malefi Henrik uh, McIntosh. So uh, that's a kind of a personal view of who Professor Clark is, but, you know, he's, he's affected a generation of scholars in every field. So I was in the second um, group of students that graduated with degrees in black studies. There was one who graduated uh, before me. Her name was Carrie Wilson. She became a physician. Dr. Gary Turner. He became a physician. There was, so in the field of medicine, there are many I can name. Uh, the former Deputy Commissioner of Human Rights here in New York, uh, Esmeralda Simmons, she was one of his students. Uh, he affected, and that was just from Hunter, but throughout the country he affected uh, black people in whatever their area of specialization by teaching them about their history and about the people in their field who had uh, right. preceded them, and also with his message of that we must acquire nation-building skills. Uh, it was something to be a student, and then as you started doing your research, to see that your professor was not just a person who was talking to you about the history, that he was actually a part of the history. You look back, mm. and I mean, he could, speak with, he could tell you about uh, Richard Wright. He could tell you about Langston Hughes. He could tell you about Marcus Garvey. He could tell you about Malcolm X. You know, Malcolm X used to go to Professor Clark. Professor Clark had an extensive library. So Malcolm X used to go to Professor Clark's house to prepare for those lectures that he would do. And Professor Clark said right. that Malcolm was able to assimilate, you know, like information and use it like really faster than anyone he had ever, uh, uh, than he'd ever seen. And uh, so, you know, Professor Clark, and then, Professor Clark was a part, a major part, of this kind of community that formed at places like the First World Alliance in Harlem, where you had lecturers yes. like Dr. Joseph Ben-Yakinen, Dr. Clark, uh, Ivan Van Sertema, um, and like who else? I, can't, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm blocking a little bit, but uh, Joseph Mack, uh, lots of, of, of the brother uh, down, um, Lister Middleton, it was a series of lectures that they had up in Harlem, and as the community started coming there, people started videotaping them and this sort of thing. And these videotapes started circulating around the country. Um, and, and, and Wade Nobles, other people like this, would be visiting people that would come there. So uh, that combined with Dr. Ben taking P2 
the continent, the Kimmy, sea. Right. The, uh, you know, it, it got to a point of where there was a, a body of information and a group of people that had information, and we had it before, the, we had it and had mastered it before the Europeans actually were able to even start to counter it. So, uh, you know, um, that's in a nutshell Professor Clark from my perspective, but he is uh, one of our greatest historians, and um, we, uh, he's, his, his, um, the John Henry Clark House is the organization, uh, where he was the president of that uh, organization uh, called the Board for the Education of People of African Ancestry, and um, uh, we're housed at 286 uh, Convent Avenue in, uh, in Harlem, and uh, um, I'm the I'm the current uh, chair of the board there at uh, at uh, Vapor, also, and and you know, Professor Clark um, uh, still lives for us. We have a chair there that no one sits in. It's his chair, and uh, it's an right. ancestral shrine. And um, you know, we we celebrated him on New Year's Eve because Dr. Ben was uh, was born on um, December the 31st, 1918. Yes. Which so this was his. 97th birthday, I believe it is, uh, and Dr. Clark was born on January the 1st, 1914, so this, uh, 1915, so this was his uh, 100th birthday. Absolutely, brother. Honest to you for definitely, you know, keeping that flame, that torch lit, Honoring our great ancestor, uh, Man, I wanted you to, yes, no, no, if no, possible you know, as well, because we also don't hear enough of you know the personal accounts of you know these these great elders and these great ancestors. Can you tell us something briefly about Dr. Amos Wilson as well? Wow, yeah, I can tell you about Dr. Amos Wilson for sure. Um, Dr. Amos Wilson was a person who um, studied psychology, and specifically yes. he studied theoretical psychology. He studied at Fordham. Uh, he should have been given his Ph.D. when he wrote his first book, uh, The uh, Developmental Psychology of the, uh, of the uh, Black Child. But... You know, they gave him a hard way to go. He eventually earned his doctorate there. But when he had his master's degree, literally, he certainly could have made me put my my degree and make it into toilet paper. He was a very, very heavy brother. He studied the psychology. I mean, I, I was blessed to have, you know, conversations with him where I could see how he thought, you know. And literally, he was thinking analytically, it seems like 100% of the time. Uh, oh. Brother Bobble, who used to help with write, he explained to me that, you know, Amos had a routine of where he went through all the journals, you know, like every day. He stayed cutting edge uh, with his information. And so he was cutting edge with the information, and then he was cutting edge with his ability to analyze. He would take these things, he would look. I know that one day we were looking, and he was looking at some people that were doing some negative stuff on the corner, and he said, you know, they are frozen in Piaget's sensory motor level of development. 
<laughs> you know, like so, like <laughs> the same things that I would have learned that I learned and knew, uh, and he was taking them and applying them in unique and new ways. And so um, he had a, a, you know, he he had a business spirit also. So in addition to being a, he used to teach at Ostos College, and he used to write. And he also would try. He 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 tried to he tried his hand in business a few times. He had, uh, I knew of two bookstores he had on 125th Street. And then uh, near the end of his life, he did that thing they did in The Godfather. You know when things got real hot and they went to the mats. Uh, he opened up a place up on in the South Bronx where he had a storefront. He put a mattress right. in there. He put a computer. <laughs> and he used to write and sleep and teach, and that's all he did. And um, he died too young, uh, died of a stroke uh, at Montefiore Hospital, but not before he had created a body of literature that is uh, second to none. He wrote The Developmental Psychology of the Black Child, Awakening the Genius of the Black Child, Black on Black Violence in Service to um, White, um, mm, 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 let's see, uh, white domination, something like that. And he wrote um, other practical books on countering uh, uh, black, the so-called black-on-black violence. And uh, and his masterpiece uh, came out yes. shortly after he died, and that was called, of course, a blueprint for Black history. For black power, he, yes, uh, indeed. The, um, what is it? The falsification of African consciousness. Just a bunch of uh, of books. He was a member. We formed a little group um, uh, at, when uh, Baba um, Joari Hunter and Sister Aziza Hunter, uh, Marimba Ani, uh, um, Jeannie Bain, uh, Maxine McIntosh, myself. Uh, we, we had a group called Black Family Collective, and we used to do a lecture series at Harlem Hospital. Keith and I were were residents there, you know, resident physicians at, at there, and uh, I had become the president of the house staff, you know, which is the, like the union, the local union there. And so we were able to get the auditorium, and we would have, we started out at the County Cullen Library, and then we expanded to the uh, Harlem Hospital where we have lectures every week, every two weeks. And, you know, we'd have people like Dr. Ben, Gil Noble, et cetera. And Amos was a part of, you know, was a part of that black family collective. And uh, that's how, you know, like we got to um, see him up close. And he, his business efforts, like I said before, he he opened bookstores. Uh, one bookstore was up like right over, like right right theater upstairs. Then the, later he went into business with a brother named Bill, and they opened one in a, you know, kind of a little more modern place in a little uh, strip mall a little further down 125th Street. And lastly, as I said before, he uh, had a, uh, you know, had a little publishing company, that he operated like out of a, a, a storefront in the South Bronx. Uh, yes. He, he lived. He lived. You know. He lived simple. Simply. You know. He wasn't a person with. You know. That was into a lot of material things or anything like that. He was all about the knowledge. He was all about um, getting liberated, and he would turn things upside down when he uh, analyzed them. You know. He would. He he would. Critic. You know. He he didn't criticize the youth. He criticized the adults for not having provided the things that the youth would need to be some 
you know, uh, in order to be what you might want them to be. Economically solvent, right? Economically, and and uh, and he also one of his big things that he pointed out when you would tell him something that was wrong with the society or wrong with the way he would explain to you how in a system of white supremacy it would have to be wrong. It would you know, it would have to function that way or otherwise, like for instance, when you know, you might we all will we have a certain amount of consciousness. We talk about the fact that black people have been taught to hate their features and this sort of, but he explains that, you know, uh it's not just that you're taught to hate your features for no reason. What happens when you hate your features? When you hate your features, you have to spend all this money on clothing that you think is going to beautify you, on hair products that you think are going to beautify you. You purchase them from the person who's making you feel uh, inferior. So why would he ever stop trying to make you feel inferior? You understand? Right. Yeah, you know what I'm saying so. You know, it, it, I don't. I, I might have been just uh, just economically you know, viable. It's built into a structure. Yeah, it was, it's built into structure, and that very often one of the other things he used to say was that if you want to know the nature of a thing in a system of white supremacy, just turn the name upside down. So if they say the justice system then that's the system that's to bring you to injustice. If you say the education system, well, that's the system to miseducate you, and so on and so forth. Right. One of our members in the chat room asked, do you know about the African-American bookstore on 145th and Broadway that was across the street from Copeland's? Do I know about it? Um... No, I don't. I, I think I've seen a. Uh, no, I, I no, I, I don't. I don't know about it. Tell, tell me about it. How oh, long has I, it been there? I know where Copeland no, I mean, was. I think he Copeland's said, "Would you remember there. it?" Meaning that it maybe it was there oh, okay. a while ago and it's no longer there anymore. Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He said, yeah, uh, "It was a bookstore yeah, in yeah. it was on the ground level. It, it held every." The Liberation huh? Bookstore that used to be on um, around 132nd and Lennox, that's gone. Sister Una Mozak died. Before she died, you know, she was sick and um, had to be hospitalized. And then, and so the store just went, you know, the store just disappeared. And of hmm. course, Michelle's bookstores, you know, was gone long before that. Uh Right now, we're in the point, uh, I, I was talking to uh, Professor Jeffries this morning, where yes. one of the important battles we should have won and needed to win was when the next curator of the Schomburg was hired. You know, Professor Clark was very vigilant on this when they tried to make a, a white guy by the name of Robert Morris, the curator at the Schomburg. He recognized that that was going to be the end of the access for Afrocentric and African-centered scholars if that occurred, that it was going to be the destruction of, uh, you know, of of something that Arthur Schomburg had created. So he literally uh, helped organize the fight against that with a thing called the Schomburg Coalition. And we won it. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they were forced to hire a person who, as Charles Barron points out, they had thrown his 
resume in the garbage, you know, uh, and that was uh, Mr. Dotson, and he became the uh, the curator or the director, and he did a, a you know a, a, a decent job, but then when he left, um, you know, we knew it was going to be a time to get a new um, director and curator, and uh, December twelfth movement, and Simotap and others, we uh, demanded that Malefia Santi be the uh, you know, be the director. And we, you know, we, we got petitions going, but we don't really respect each other. So as we, um, you know, because it's not profitable for white supremacy for us to respect each other. So as we organize that, there are the, the, the old guard that's there, they run behind your back. You know, and they run. They say, yes. you don't have to listen to them, guys. They they can't, you know, that sort of thing. And so ultimately um, we know that they probably picked somebody they wouldn't have picked um, without this pressure for Malefi Asante. They picked a, a, a young man, uh, last name is Muhammad. I think it's, um, wow, I can't remember the first name. But at any rate, he's the grandson of uh, Elijah Muhammad. Uh and, you know, they wouldn't have picked anybody that progressive, you know, uh, but he's a young person. And basically, I think they they hired him because they're in the process of the cyber theft of African history. You know, uh, our elders, they had to fight the battle of these things being buried, you know, in libraries around the world, and they had to yes. scrape those things up. Well, now with this computer system, they'll be able to really uh, totally destroy it. Uh, the you know um, the the chairman of the board at that time when we were fighting, um, he's a guy uh, that I I nicknamed a long time ago Henry Skip the Truth Gates, and uh, that crew, um, oh, you know, oh. uh, they, mm-hmm. they jumped out there with things like Encarta, uh, the, the so-called. Um, you know, black library, you know, black encyclopedia online, and you need to read articles by Asante critiquing that so that you know what's wrong with it. Uh, and um, you know, uh, we're at a point where literally they're going to try to steal our history all over again. In their position, they've gotten rid of all the bookstores. Um, they basically have blocked off many of the meeting places where um, information was exchanged. And that's what you do in warfare. You cut off the communications. Uh, They don't want the kind of thing that happened with First World Alliance. Thousands of people came through and got this information firsthand from Dr. Ben and Dr. Clark and Ivan Van Sertema and, you know, all of those scholars. They don't want that. And so uh, meeting places have been blocked off. Churches have been bought off with, you know, little programs, little government programs and that sort of thing. And, Mm -hmm. uh, Stores have been uh, priced out by so-called gentrification and that sort of thing. So um, then, the, you, you know, the guardians of the literature like Arthur Schomburg are no longer here, and even well-meaning people, as well as other, you know, people that I consider to be corrupt and, and not well-meaning, um, they're in position to uh, to basically steal it all over again. Damn. That's how I see it, you know. So, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully you, can, you can think somebody's young and, 
and maybe um uh you know maybe maybe that young man you know is on top of it and knows you know will be able to outfox uh those folks that have been put there to do something different so we'll we'll, we'll see the I do have a number of hands up in the studio if you would take a few calls if you don't mind no problem. I don't want to keep you all night, but I do want to allow my, you know, callers to uh, ask some questions as well. Let's go to caller from 314-600. Caller, face. Oh. Greetings. Greetings. Face, face, greetings. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Indeed. Yes, we can. Oh, okay. okay, great show. Uh, just shout out to the Pills. Uh, you know, appreciate the show. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Doc, is, Doc is really on point. And um, basically, I didn't know I was going to chime in, but um, uh, I did have a question as far as, um, dang, I can't, I can't even remember my question now, Doc. Um, but uh, just, just great show, fellas. Appreciate it chiming in. I'm just listening in, man. Indeed. All right. Indeed. Thank Thank you. Appreciate you. Bro. All right. Positive or, or what? Uh, huh? I yeah yeah slipped my mind because I wasn't I wasn't planning on getting uh, getting chimed in, but uh, it just slipped my mind. It's it's uh, all good, man. brother. I'll tell you like Thank my you, doctor bro. told me. I told him I was having a few problems with my memory. He told me don't worry about it. He said don't worry okay. about it. It's going to get worse. <laughs> okay, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt, no doubt. Appreciate the info, though, Doc. Appreciate y'all. All right, my brother. All right, peace. 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 All right, let's go to the 504. Let's go to the 504-376. 504-376, call the peace. Yes, I'm uh, grateful to, uh, to have listened to your show so far this evening. I'm calling from uh, New Orleans, and I did have the opportunity to know late Dr. Amos Wilson and John Henry Clark. In fact, the last time John Henry Clark was here, I, I take the pride in having been his personal chauffeur, him and uh, Mrs., I think, Sybil, I think was her name. Yes, Sybil, that's his uh, wife. Uh-huh. Sybil, yes, I, I had a chance to literally be with them all day and be responsible for them. Well, you but were blessed, I, right? I, I wanted to uh, say that uh, one of the things you talked about was in the, in our African American history, uh, many of uh, instances of our resistance. Uh, there's a great book a sister from the Schomburg wrote, Sylvia Juf, I believe is her name, and her book is called Slavery's Exiles: The Story of American Maroons, where it is the first comprehensive study of maroonage in the United States. Yeah, I tell you, I read that book. It is absolutely fascinating. I mean, you talk about heroes and action-packed movies white folks have made. I'm mm-hmm. getting to wonder if they took all those ideas from studying our own history. <laughs> really, you know, um, in the book um, Introduction to Black Studies by uh, Maulana Karinga, he delineates, you know, like how many uh, maroon communities there were in the United States. You know, not even to mention South America and those places, you know. Right. Um, right. And um, Dr. Clark was very, um, he, su- I, he surprised some uh, people 
with how supportive he was of political prisoners because mm-hmm. he saw our political prisoners, uh, people like Eddie Conway and others, as being the direct correlates, you know, of those rebels in the past, such as, you know, Denmark V.C. and Gabriel Prosser and, and Nat Turner, et cetera. And so uh, a brother by the name of Shep up here in New York, he told a story at one of the um, anniversaries of Professor Clark where they went and asked Professor Clark if he would come down to visit uh, Brother Eddie Conway, and he said yes, he would, and it was a long road trip. And so they had made, they had put their little dollars together to get Professor Clark, you know, like a special, like where he could, you know, travel specially, where he could uh, rest specially in place, and he told them no, he was going to rough it just like them. And he actually made that trip with them, you know, earning their uh, great respect. Uh, but, you know, Shep was also able to understand what Professor Clark's rationale was. Okay, okay. Um, so that, I want to end with asking you a question, Dr. McIntosh, about uh, it seems as though we're in a rut, the, the African-American community, about how, where to go. And my question is, it seems to me that when it comes to relating to our young people uh, uh, from the standpoint of parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, teachers, neighbors, it's as if we have been made to not want to say to our young people, hey, you can't do that. Hey, you're not really free. You can't go out here like that. You know, and it's, it's, there's an aspect in our opinion of discipline in order to topple this system that the troops must have, how are we to develop the discipline we need to resist this system, to to destroy the nature of, of, of how it exists, if we are not teaching our young people to to have limits? And, and it seems to me in the nationalist community, we have gotten to a point to where you don't criticize aspects of our people who may be doing things to other blacks. It's like you just don't tell them that. that that's what I feel that, that exists. Yes, I, 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 can, I can see how uh, that would come to you. You know, um, there's been, you, you know, there are, there are lots of forces and lots of uh, policies that you can see are aimed at breaking down that um, impact that one generation could or traditionally had with the next generation. I mean, right in the family, you have parents that can't discipline their children without having to uh, worry about, you know, um, authorities getting involved in it. Mm -hmm. You have parents that uh, can't um, intervene with, uh, you know, the authorities when they get directly involved with their children. You have a certain number of children that get placed into group homes and these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And all of this kind of uh, disruption creates increasing chaos, and a lot of people feel helpless to do anything about it. 
that's really what one of the problems is. It's not so much like that they don't care. It's that they don't feel they can do something. Um, mm-hmm. You do have to start with your own family, and then you have to reach out. You know, like at CEMOTAP, we've had things like where we have our children and then an extended group called the Sons of CEMOTAP, and we have mentoring programs for them, uh, um, summer program, that sort of thing. You know, not funded by the government, just, you know, done by the organization. We've done that a few times. We, we've we had, like, uh, interns, uh, and I think those are the kinds of things that we have to do if we want to change things. Uh, criticism really doesn't uh, change anything. It's not that we don't have enough critique of the misbehavior of young people. It's that criticism doesn't help that. Saying something bad about that doesn't help that. They're not your employees. The police are your employees. So your critique to public officials, that ha- that, that that's supposed to have some impact. But with these young people, you have to provide them the things that they need. You have to see that they get the education they need, that they get the the recreational uh, things that they need, and that they get the supervision that they need. Criticism, they don't even want to hear it. They're not going to listen to it. Do, yeah. do you, did, did that answer your question? or? Well, can I give you a concrete example? Sure. Okay, I, I live in New Orleans, and prior to Hurricane Katrina, of course, the area of New Orleans I live, you know, had become a black community because of white flight. But for the most part, you know, the community, uh, the area of New Orleans where I live, you know, was pretty uh, relatively, uh, you know, a place to live. Now, after Hurricane Katrina, one of the big issues was to tear down housing developments, which they ultimately voted to tear down the remaining housing developments. And Section 8 vouchers were given to many people. So, one of the big problems many African Americans have is that we have other people who live in your street, your community, who when you go to their parents and say, hey, look, Johnny is putting flowers out the lawn. Johnny is tearing up the mailbox. Johnny's mother don't want to hear it. You see, and so now, all of us are victims of white supremacy, okay, uh-huh. but it's as if we have developed this attitude among us as black people where those of our people who have less material stuff represent the real blacks. Now, this is my interpretation of how I feel the attitude has been. And so you don't tell them anything. You don't correct them. You don't demand any any higher standards. So we all could struggle against what we're up against. And so uh, many black people who are struggling are having serious problems, not with the children per se, but with the people who are supposed to be responsible for the children who are not correcting them. Yeah, you know, um, Dr. Adelaide Sanford, you know, she points out that, well, first let me tell you, Brother G2EUC, he said, in a war, if you don't bring it, you don't make it, and you can't take it, then you ain't got it. 
And what it means is, is that when you're fighting a war, you really can't complain about the weather. You can't complain about not having enough equipment. You can't complain about the soldiers not having enough training. Whatever it is you've got, you know, any problem like that that you have, you have to be resourceful. That's what Sister Adelaide Sanford talks about, being resourceful mm-hmm. in order to solve it. In other words, it's you, you, you have to figure out. In other words, just because you go to the parents and they don't listen to you, then that means you have to do something else. There's a book uh, that used to be required reading uh, for people someplace. It used to be called um, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And in one of the first chapters, he talks about the futility of criticizing people. Uh, you, you're just not going to get anywhere with that. But that with, if you're talking about an adult person, there's only one way you can get another person to do what you want, and that is to make them want to do it. You follow what I'm saying? It may mm-hmm. seem like a non-answer to you, but what it means when you encounter a problem like that is not to just say, well, we just got a problem. The old people, they, not, they don't want to tell their kids. There's got to be, you've got to find the key, what they want. What do they want, and how can you connect that to what you want? Because you all are in the same place. You have the same, you, you, you have that same actual interest, but that other person may not realize at this point that it's in their interest. And that's where, you know, that's a, a problem specific to your neighborhood with your neighbors. You start with the believers. Start with the other people who see it as you do. You got me? I hear you, Doc. I hear you. you. Start with the other people, and if you have to form, I mean, I don't know the structure down there, you know, how rural it is or how urban it is, but you start with a block association. And if the people don't want to talk about beautifying the community, they don't want to talk about keeping the community safe, they don't want to talk about then you start them with a party. Most people want to talk about a party. You understand? You start with socializing to where you can, if you go to a stranger and start telling them something about their kids, they're not going to listen to you. But if you can make it where you all are part of the same community, and sometimes sometimes there's nothing you can do but something social with people. You see? But uh, you know, Doc, you know, Doc that, when they go in those Arab stores, and they go in those Vietnamese stores, they know how to act all of a sudden. Yeah, well, you know, I'll say this now. You can you can take the attitude that like that they're all messed up and and, and if that gets you somewhere, well then you go with that. But I, what I'm saying is is that I think that uh you can fight fire with fire if you want to. But mm-hmm. what I'm saying is you ought to fight fire with water. Mm-hmm. And um that um you have to I don't know what it is that the individual, you know, I don't know the individuals you're speaking about but you got to figure out what it is that they want and you got to find some kind of way to halfway help them to get what they want, get friendly, uh-huh. and then get them to see a little bit of how what it is that you want will be to their advantage. Mm-hmm. Because if they mm-hmm. to their advantage, they're not going to want to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. Carla. I've definitely been enjoying. I've been enjoying your wisdom, and uh, listen, I'm enjoying the show. Well, well thank you, brother. I, you. I, 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 it's nice being treated like I have such wisdom, but you know, I don't <laughs> feel like I have so much. But but you all have been so nice. If it, if if it if it helps, I'm glad. If it if it doesn't, just disregard it because we there's enough wisdom out there. We got the ancestors and the elders that can. Um, that can answer anything that, that, that I'm not able to answer. Thank you, Carla. Thank you. Peace. Let me uh, see some more hands up here. Have, the, the problems we have, they're not new. You know, think of how you, you think of how our ancestors had to come yes. from different ethnic groups of Africans speaking different languages. Uh, with in a system that was going to try to pit them one against the other, and they yes. still had to solve it. And when you see that they did that, use that sentence I told you before. The brother who was talking about the difficulties having in his community, Harriet wouldn't feel sorry for you. She wouldn't feel sorry for you because she had to deal with problems that were the same and sometimes larger. But you got to be creative. You got to be resourceful. You got to be determined, and uh, you got to win. You can't lose. The, the losing is death. It's a war, so losing is death. The people who lose in a war, the men get killed, your children get killed, the women get raped, your land gets taken, your resources get used. You can't lose. It's a war, so you can't lose. If you keep talking about the neighbors don't they they want to they 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 will shop in that store but they won't shop in this store they don't want to discipline their kid well you could stay keep doing that if you want to but if you recognize it's a war you got to figure out some way to change that right absolutely so we're gonna take another caller and this is caller from the two one three eight zero four. Caller from the 213 804. Peace. Yo, peace to the fields. Yo, peace to the doctor. The mind that giving it up, star. For real. Peace to the family of nations. This is Buddha, everybody. Buddha Clinks. Um, Buddha. Man. Peace, Buddha. Man, I've been listening in and I've been enjoying the blessing for the um, the Gregorian year. Give thanks. Um. Yeah. You dropped so much. I just wanted to comment one thing um, on the last thing when a um, caller from the 504 was on Big Up New Orleans out there and Big Up John Malo, St. Malo um, from the Maroon Nation that was um, putting in work in New Orleans because a lot of people didn't know that. And a lot of people don't talk about the, the Maroons and their actual population of the Caribbean um, through the Americas. So I like the fact that that was brought up on the show. But the thing that I wanted to ask the doctor a question of, because he has a professional background, and in um, the family of nations or what they call the conscious community, people tend to have a standoff approach to people that have professional titles. And I know this from being a teacher. And it's not until they get to know us on a personal level and actually see the work we do that they um, realize it's viable. Now, 
when they realize this, it's because of something you said earlier that our philosophical background comes out of those great teachers of wisdom, those houses of wisdom that were manifested in those um, beings that um, surpassed anything that I'm trying to accomplish in reference to John Henry Clark, um, Arthur Schomburg, and the entire list and litany of people that you listed. But what I'm suggesting, if you think, is one thing we could demand in the community that anyone that goes into a professional position is grounded in that philosophy. And then thereby we know that their classroom or their their practice in terms of whatever medical profession or legal profession, um, even if they're a mechanic and they're into the trades, the technical arts, there's going to be a certain grounding that will affect the community because we've established our own philosophical perspective, per se, that's equivalent to the the mythos that the white people, um, that what they call the white people, I call the Eurasian, has imposed with their acceptance of the the false um, Socratic down to Aristotelian method, but we have our own philosophical method that we sort of demand that our people in the community are grounded in. I know it's long-winded, so let me cut it short. What happened, bro? Hello? Yes, yes, bro. Yes. So you get the question? Finish your question. That was the question. I was asking if you think that we should demand these people be skilled in our um, basic philosophers, as I would call them, or houses of wisdom, before they could even enter a, pra- a professional practice in our community as a source of starting to create a standard of change. Because, you know, when I was working in the school district, for instance, you might go to my class and you're getting this, this, this certain perspective and you go to the next classroom, it could be a black teacher that, you know, is grounded in the system. And there was no demand from the community that they be grounded in this philosophy first before they were allowed to address our people. Well, you know, a demand... I wonder if you would agree with that, if that's something that we could implement or demand of people that go to work in the community. So long as you realize that a, a demand is nothing but a strong request, that's what a yeah. demand is. You know, we have to we have to find ways to make this information uh, so available, so present, so um, make it permeate the community so much that everybody gets it that way. Because if you go up to a person who has more money more power and uh, more security than you have, talking about you demand that they learn something before, you know, they'll just laugh in your face. But now if you have that kind of power, if you have that kind of community organization, obviously you can do it. But for the most part, we don't. I think that we need to, you know, that a a way in which you could accomplish what, you, what you're saying you want to do is to uh, – make this information and make this education, as I said before, so present everywhere that uh that, that people people receive it. And you start 
with your children. You start with uh, your school. You start with getting control of uh, where the children are going, to, you know, uh, of who's educating your children and where they go to school and that sort of thing. If you're, if you're a teacher, like I can tell you there's a, te- a teacher by the name of Sister Adelaide Sanford. Um, she was a principal at a school fed by a housing project called um, Revoir Housing Projects in Brooklyn. And she took that mm-hmm. school from the lowest performing academic school on the standardized test in the district to the highest performing urban school in the state. And a part of what she believed in and and made happen was, you know, knowledge of our history and our culture and, and that sort of thing. So our presence of one teacher like that influenced the other teachers and the other administrators and also created generations of students who, um, you know, left out with that philosophy. Not each and every student, but many. And, you know, I was blessed that she was one of my elementary school teachers. So uh, I know that that can happen, you know, that a person, you can change the culture of of a school. Now, you were a, you, you, you were a teacher, and was that a public school? What kind of school was that that you were teaching at? I teach at um, Morningside High School in Inglewood with, I'm in a blood community, and I was basically put out of the school for being successful. I ran the AP literature program and had my top 20 students for 10 years received full scholarships to all the UC universities in Los Angeles. And because basically I wasn't a Christian, I wasn't teaching against Christianity because to understand European literature, you have to be thoroughly versed in the Christian narrative. I was actually explaining the Christian narrative in concert with the hypocrisy of European literature and making it relevant because it was in the literature. It's thoroughly exposed. And I was kicked out the classroom. There was a, a campaign sort of against me because I wasn't a Christian. Yeah. And, and, my problem was, well, if y'all were grounded in black, the the actual historic perspective of, of black people and you understood this Christian narrative, you wouldn't be fighting against me. And so that's why I tried to veil my question, basically. Um, but it, it came out now. I didn't want to attack the Christians. But <laughs> I was trying to say if we had this philosophy as just the basic standard before you were allowed to go into a professional domain, I think that would help permeate this message because once you get to a certain level of this understanding, I'm sure you've encountered it, there's a mental block that occurs, and people yeah, will fight saying, you. We're not saying uh, uh, something different. I mean, the thing is, if, you, if you, I don't know if you understood what I said. See, the thing is, you've got to recognize, see, uh, there's something that Wade Noble says, power is the ability to define reality and have others respond to it as if it were their own. If you don't have the power to do that, it's just a pipe dream to talk about you're going to require everybody to do this and to do that. You didn't have the power to do that. Another aspect of war is 
you don't get killed. You can't get killed. Look at what your students lost by your leaving there. You know, I mean, to some, and, and you didn't leave of your own free will, but a part of the soldier's responsibility as long as you can and not get killed while you do what you have to do. Now, I'm not, in no way am I uh, criticizing you because I don't know the circumstances. No, no, what I'm trying to explain psychologically is the same way it became sort of a mandate <laughs> for you to have a certain type of gangster background to be accepted in the rap industry. I don't care if you're a pop artist. There has to be, and that became sort of a standard that wasn't really the standard that was set in hip-hop. I'm just using this analogy right now. And I'm saying if there's a way where we can spread where if you don't know this knowledge, we're just not listening to you. And you have to, you understand what I mean? Where we, if it, I don't know the answer. That's why I'm asking you, given your background, if there's a way that we can keep pressing this to where it becomes the, the litmus test before you can speak to the people, basically. That if you have not been exposed to these certain teachers in the community, that there's no reason to listen to you because your perspective is only going to be to advance white supremacy. Well, um, I, I think I, I, I think that it's like we're having two different conversations, that what I'm saying is, you have to have the power to do that. When you're not in the when you don't have the power to do that, then that's not a good strategy. In no, no, way, see, I, I hear I you talking moral, about the power. Just this one point. I think you win the moral ethical uh, 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 debate, but you see what happened to you when you tried to implement something you didn't have the power to do at the at the school you were at. Trust me, my life. <laughs> you got you Trust got you. Me, no. it, it's not you know, it's not about you you can't be Joe Frazier with this. You know, Joe Frazier used to say, you know, I believe in going forward. I believe in going forward because I believe if you take a step back you lose something. Well that's true. But you know, you want to be able to remember your kids' names at the end of the day. And Joe Frazier just going forward, forward, forward when he hit a force like like George Foreman or whatever it is, it doesn't allow you to keep fighting for a long time. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't. Yo, I think you're right on line with what I'm talking about because what I'm trying okay. to find out is in the contrapositive form of reasoning is where is the power in the powerlessness, right? Because there's a certain power in, in that entity in itself that we haven't figured out because you keep talking about the power to do something, but I'm saying with me, our people don't have no power, so how can I sort of use their powerlessness as a source of, of motivation or a tool? You get what I'm saying? By just changing the litmus test somehow amongst the powerless to where this is what's popping. And if you're not I, on that, that was, then nobody that wants to I listen saw, to you. That wasn't what I saw Dr. Sanford do. That's what I will say. The, the greatest educator I know in that regard, it wasn't what I saw Dr. Shabazz do the greatest math educator that I've ever seen. Like, there are things that even the unconscious person has that are of value educationally. If the person knows how to do mathematics, but they, sure. think, that, they think that Euclid invented geometry, well, they're way off base. But, <laughs> but 
But if they know how to do those calculations, you're going to have to leave them in place and get the information to your students. Your students are your objectives. And if you can teach them as you go over time, you know, in other words, everything is not cutting people off. Cutting people off isn't always the solution. You know, I've seen great teachers like that influence the rest of their faculty over time. But if you want immediate change where you think you're going to demand and that kind of, then, you know, I have to say, show me an example of that working, and then I'll change my belief on this. But I'm saying the great ones that I've seen, that wasn't the way they did it. Okay. Well, I'll take advice anyway, man, because I went in and I tried and I was successful. Um, I changed the the school's operating system, the writing platform, all type of things. Yet once they stole my success and tried to um, um, replicate my program, they, they booted me out. And I just couldn't understand that. And it was, And I thought it was just a basis that we're coming from a different, we have the same goals in making st- um, students successful for society, but the yeah. background of knowledge and philosophy I was employing for my success, they had not, they didn't understand or embrace. And I'm saying that that created a chasm that I see in terms of speaking to the people in reference to what the brother was saying from New Orleans when he can't reach the, the young people, well, they, don't, they didn't drive around Dr. Clark. They didn't um, meet his wife. They didn't, they didn't come from that philosophical background. They're coming from a whole different um, um, uh, disposition that's allowing them to view the world in such a way that there's, not a, dis, there's a disconnect. And they came out of a classroom. They came out of a society where there was somebody that didn't have that connection with Dr. Clark, Dr. Ben, Dr. This, like your teacher had. And what I'm saying is our community needs to demand that there's a litmus test. Like, yo, if you don't know this information, why are you even, you know, we know you were successful in the school and whatever, but you need to go and listen to KTL University. You need to get in contact with Dr. McIntosh. You need to do some other research before you can even come into class because you're going to affect generations of students that are going to conflict right. with someone like me coming right. into classroom. You see? What and that's the dilemma right. I'm at. Now, I understand what you're saying. What he's saying is that we have to have the power to force such a thing to take place because the fact that the opposite is taking place is exactly part of that quote-unquote system that we're talking about you know, no, see, what I'm saying is that as an exercise of power amongst the powerless, though, like that's the first demand of the conscious community. Like if there's one parent demanding that at the school, then three parents demanding that, then four parents in the community, and five parents, and six parents, and then there's a letter to the PTA, then there's a letter to the school board, and there's consistent pressure. And then there's a, a media campaign, like, yo, these people are popping up all over the nation demanding that people go to their school, be skilled in these programs and this, this, and that. You understand what I'm saying? Like, the, I'm not saying that's like we don't have I'm saying that as a first act of power 
is to okay. use that as the litmus test is what I'm that's saying. It. That's, that's all. Because right now it's been Jesus Christ. Brother, I ain't going to argue with any strategy that you can make work. I mean, in other words, I told you on the moral, ethical level, what you're saying sounds good. And if you can make that work, if you can bring that into being, if you can take that out of the realm of just thoughts and fantasy and bring that into the real world and make that actually uh, bring the results that you suspect it would achieve, how, who am I to say that, that that is wrong? You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe. Oh no, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm not trying to argue with you. I want you to know no, that I'm actually reaching out for answers, brother. I'm not arguing with uh, you either, brother. I'm not arguing with you either. I mean, we had agreement. Yeah, I just want you to know that uh, Buddha yeah. argument. I just, I, I love the uh, trying to work towards a solution. That's all. And I'm yeah. just talking yeah. about an idea yeah. and working it through as best I'm, I can. I'm not taking it in any bad way. I've enjoyed your uh, your remarks, and you're making me think. I'm 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 thinking it out. You know, just because, and what I'm telling you is that just because I can't see a thing or see how it would take place, you seem so strong on it, and that that helps. When a, when you feel strongly about something, very often you can make it manifest. You see, and so the person, you know, I, I I don't. In other words, it's 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 not the way necessarily that I would operate or tend to operate, but that doesn't mean that it couldn't work. You know, uh, so so if that's the, if that's what your spirit is telling you is the way to go about it, the only thing I ask you to do is this: follow this rule that they have in tennis. I heard David Dinkins say this: Where the always change a losing game, never change a winning game. So when you test that out, if the theory you have, you find that it keeps not working, then 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 you got to switch up. Word. Yo, I, I like that that right there okay. because that's kind of how I live my life. When it don't, when I find, you know, I just got to keep moving and try the next thing. I don't give up. So, yes, I love that right there. That's aspiration. Indeed. All right, beautiful. Thank brother. you, my brother. Yo, I'm gonna get off the line, man. I want to hog the show, man. I'm sorry, but give thanks, Doctor McIntosh, and everybody. Big up the pills once again, and big up the family and their sons, man. And thank Road you too, God, you, my brother. brother. As Thanks. always. Peace. Peace, God. Okay, my brother. We're gonna take one more question, if that's cool with you. All right. Yes, sir. But I do want you, before we take the question, I want you to announce one more time. The information for this Sunday's um, presentation that you'll be making this Sunday we're going at the Tamari Temple. We're going to be at the Tamari Temple, which is at 104 East 126th Street in Harlem, New York. And our topic is the unauthorized uh, psychoanalysis of Bill Cosby and his accusers. And we are going to uh, take a look at exactly what's being said and we're going to take a look at comparing that to the well-established personality and uh, behavior of this brother that we know. And we're going to take a look at what um, you know where where we see contradictions and and um, uh, how we see this in time and space uh, as we know it here in white supremacy. What is this really about? You know what? What? How? What does this have to do with power? Because we know that this is not the way we have seen cases proceed in the past. We didn't see um, Governor Spitzer uh, get case after case after case after case delineated in the press without ever going to court. We didn't see uh, any other situation where public shaming 
was the way they handled the case instead of uh, uh, in the courts. And we didn't, and we haven't seen any other case where uh, the statute of limitations is so far exceeded. Fifty-year-old charges, forty-year-old charges, thirty-year-old charges, and twenty-year-old charges as the rule instead of the exception. We've never seen that before. So we, that tells us that something else is afoot. And we're going to discuss that. We're going to kick it. I'm going to, uh, I have my charts. I have my information. I have my statements. I have my videotapes. I videotape some of the accusers. And as I said before, uh, it lets me know that it's not rape that is the issue. It's something else that is the issue. Indeed. Absolutely. I look forward to it. Um going to go to our last caller. Caller from the 410-595-410. Caller, peace. Are you there? Peace, yeah, Greetings. Lord. Yeah. Greetings. Peace to the doctor on McIntosh. Greetings. Um, I, I had a series of questions, and, you know, if we have time, you would indulge me. Uh, um, you mentioned the name of the individual who stomped out the child that was cut from the woman's womb. What was his name? Who did what? Uh, you, st- you told us a story about a guy, about a lynching that took place that they didn't ever write, write about, but you know the guy's name, and I wanted that detail. Um, I'm sorry, are you talking about Tawana Brawley, or are you talking about... No, no, no the, the lynching the, the, that the was uh, where they cut the... They Mary Turner. Mary Turner. All right. That was the Mary Turner lynching. All right. I want to know what you what your views are with regards to status, you know, citizenship, nationality. Do you subscribe to uh, a, a, like a revival of Black Wall Street? Because you're talking about power, powers and wealth in this in this society. Are you along the lines of Black Wall Street? Illustrated something for you, which is that you know. Simply economic wealth without defense is 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 not you know it is very easy without to, what know, without what was that word defense d e yeah F-E-N-S. yeah okay I got I I I totally I totally agree with that okay so I let me ask you so um you 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 would recommend that we be trained and equipped to defend ourselves and wouldn't you? And and what kind of program um, could facilitate that? Because that is some serious stuff right there. You know, they did the the all the gun laws in this country was designed to keep guns out of our hands anyway, so they could have them in 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 areas of this country where they didn't take away guns. You know, you they and, and we were able to fight back. We didn't get bothered. You know, we still have elodios in this country, and what um. You said that the ability to uh, define reality and get someone else to agree with it and take it as their own is, is power. But, you know, power is, is manifest in several ways because... There's several that definitions is, of power, brother. That, several definitions yeah. of power. I mean, uh, Mao Zedong said power grows from the barrel of a gun. I think Andrew Jackson said uh, uh, truth is power. Uh, you know, yeah, there are many okay. definitions I, for power. Yeah, I one last one last thing I wanted to um, throw out there. I, I, I right because I just wanted to get involved with with you with your mind because you fascinate me. Right, all right. Uh, um, 
Would you, you when we see how Castro repelled the, the uh, Kennedy administration, how uh, uh, Iran, Afghanistan, guerrilla tactic work all over the world? Okay. So when we talk about you know the the, the power to to take over or to you know seventy eight percent of every military is bred from the stock of of the underclass citizen. And when you say class is not a thing, it's yeah, it's truly class. But it is when we look at the prisons, we see what it is. Uh-huh. It's all you know. It's about some global domination thing. This is you know exactly what the brother said in Louisiana is happening all over this country, and it's all happening in wake of the epidemic that hit us in the eighties with their crack guns and. All of that contra Iran, all this whole thing, Bush's apology for all that. So you, you know, when you said uh, that there are many powers and agencies and, and conspiracies and workings, yeah, that's true. So the the ultimate, in my mind, is, is, is separation. But there there need be a unified. You know, that's really where the power is in in the in the like mind. Well, so know, there need. Be, you know, I'm just I'm just going on them because I know we're gonna get caught off at any minute, bro. Let me let me um advise you. No problem, no problem. Uh-huh. You know, um <laughs> you know, uh I didn't mean to just drop it all on you like the brother no, did no, no, it just no, came no, before me, right? But, <laughs> this, but these are the thoughts you provoked. You provoked yeah, these wonderful and I heard you. Yeah. I really heard you. I'm not even gonna talk about what I heard, what I really heard. Because you're just as angry as me. No, you know any 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 man will admit, but never uh, uh, mention at length what he thinks about this whole situation. Because the the one who engages in it with his heart and identifies with the victim here, who is us <laughs> constantly, you know, then 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 he knows who he is to some extent. He knows who he is. Now, you know, to mobilize nationally. Is required because there's a national, nationally mobilized force killing our babies, man. Murdering our babies, punching our pregnant black women in the face. That is to spur, that was one of my comments, questions too. To, to, do you think that this is a conspiracy to legitimize uh, what they did, like what they did in China and Tiananmen Square, gun down all those people in front of the whole world to see. And, you know, they can do that here because of, you know, the picture that they painted so graphically on a global scale. This all, you know, spiraled it out of my head when you when you stated, yeah, you know, yeah, a few yeah. things, bro. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be, you know, um, you have to be wise and 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 you 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 I can see the number of levels on which you're thinking, and I think you're thinking along the right lines because see, these are not people that really want to fight a fair fight. They they I mean they basically no. win at all costs by any they, means. They they are they are following actually something that I heard said about other people once, and I say, you fight two times when you know you can win. And when you're willing to die, when you know you can win, or when you are willing to die, you got to know you're right first. See, see, we start out with that—that that you're right. So now, when are you going to fight? 
You don't want to fight if you know you're going to lose, right? Yeah, because that's that's ridiculous. It's not even right. strategy. And you don't, and you, don't uh, you know, and if you if you if if you fight when you know you're going to lose, then that means you're willing to die. Okay, now here goes one last idea. My six one, or is now, it my nine? All right, say, hold, on, hold on, Okay, all right, I hope. Let him finish building, bro. Man, oh, I gotta drop this on him, boo, before we go, man. Just peep this, peep this thought. Okay. A team of hackers could bring a country to its knees. Nonviolent, age of Aquarius, technological serious, because that's what it is. It's a network that if you jam it, they're, they're caught. They're caught with their pants down. You know, we had a. Uh... We we had a uh, the program we had for Dr. Clark the other night. We had a brother named Dr. Arthur Lewis. Dr. Arthur Lewis uh, spoke very briefly. He must have mentioned uh, less than ten incidents that have occurred around the world that he knew people had not read about or heard about, to some, but that he thought had great 